I can point to in the design and development process where I argued one way and was shouted down or whatever. Sure. And you know, and that just is the way it is, and that's yep. okay. And I and even my solution to the time were probably not any better than what we got. <laughs> sure, sure. You're not saying you were right, but no, I, I had no idea, that. right? I had no idea. I mean, some of those ideas did make their way in the shadow of the demon lord, which I know is ahead still, but uh, some of them were not. I want you to imagine that uh, you are one of the creators of by far the largest tabletop game in history. Um, and that's Dungeon and Dragons 5th Edition. So I'm sitting down with Robert Schwalb, who is a awfully interesting guy. Not only does he have um, a fascinating history of what he's contributed to the RPG history and um, you know paths that led us to where we are now, but um, he's got an interesting mind for both the uh, fluff and the lore of, a, of role-playing, and uh, he's also a mechanic. He also really puts together some very interesting um, concepts as far as you know how, how a game should work. We talk about his history, how he got to be part of the Dungeon and Dragons 5th edition um, design team, what it was like to work on the game, what it was like to work for Wizards of the Coast. And then we spend time talking about what happened after. So he is uh, probably just as well known now for his Shadow of the Demon Lord, a gritty, not safe for work, fantasy role playing game. If you're interested in how the sausage is made, you're going to enjoy this episode. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Robert. Third Floor Wars delivers interviews, insights, and discussions about everything hitting the tabletop. Screens turned off, phones put away, and friends gathered around a table. In a world where life hits you from all sides, you deserve time to relax, disconnect, and unplug. Rule books, plastic models, dice, and cards in hand. Let the gaming begin. Tabletop games let you escape and unleash grand battles and regale epic tales of adventure with your friends. If you love gaming and learning from players, designers, experts, and creators, you are in the right place. Pull up a chair. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk Podcast. Craig here on the third floor. Today's guest is Robert Schwalb. He is known for his work on Dungeons and Dragons, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, Cypher Systems, Pathfinder, whew, Demon of the <laughs> Shadow of the Demon Lord, and Shadow of the Weird West. So needless to say, Robert's been involved with a lot of things. So Robert, welcome to the third floor. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's always great to chat about these things and others and to meet a new friend. <laughs> well, uh, I don't think we need to uh, get into whether you have any geek cred or not. It looks like you've touched about every major thing in role-playing, and the best I can read it. Just a few areas that I have not yet to sink my claws into, but I'm still, <laughs> on, the, I'm still on the hunt. That's awesome. So um, usually what I like to do, Robert, is I like to uh, go back in time when I have a guest and uh, kind of learn how you got into gaming. So I want you to go back and imagine you didn't know you could roll dice and pretend to be other people. And then all of a sudden you discovered it. So what was the first your first encounter with tabletop role playing? The very first time I sat down to genuinely make the attempt. Um well, there were two. There's one, there's the attempt of making the character, and there's also the attempt of playing the game. Sure. Uh, the character creation process was, for me, a tedious and painstaking and irritating <laughs> process. One that I never, that I realized upon doing it, that 
this was not a hobby that was made for me. One I would never, ever do again. And the whole thing was just foolish. Because what happened was, was I sat down with uh, my dear friend, uh, Landon, who was at the time my uh, uh, fellow comic book enthusiast and a fellow nerd in Brentwood, Tennessee. Uh, he was taking me through the process of creating a character. Now, prior to this, I had adapted a, a module, Rahazia, by Tracy and Laura Hickman, into uh, a role-playing game of my own, thinking that I could just, I didn't have the books, so I just solved for X by kind of extrapolating what was in the adventure and then building an RPG around it and then, running that, and then running that game for all my sixth grade classmates. <laughs> and, which is what attracted Landon to me was like, look, man, we're going to have to, we're going to pump the brakes here. Let's, let's get you <laughs> to do a real role-playing game. And uh, that's not just something you made up because you're already seeing the flaws in your game design, right, Rob? Because uh, you're giving them levels every time they cross from one side of the grass pa graph paper to the other side. <laughs> and once they figured out how that worked, they just farmed levels by hopping from one side of the page to the other side until I realized, hey, man, that's kind of crappy. Let's just anyway. So it was a big mess. But well, before, uh, before you go on, Robert, so so if I'm understanding this correctly, you you started by designing a game before you played the game. Am I capturing that correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. And this is back in sixth grade. So where did you get the Hickman uh, module to, to, to build from? Uh, so my, uh, my neighbor behind me that lived in the house behind me, we lived. Uh, uh, yeah, he was in the street behind and he, we're, we're friends, uh, we collected comic books, we talk comic books forever, and we'd play war in the backyard and run around and do stupid stuff as kids. Uh, but he had picked up, or his mom had picked up, uh, this module for uh, at a yard sale for a quarter. And so he was like, <laughs> I'll take a quarter for it. And I was like, sure. And so there it was. And this was interesting. And, was, and for a starting adventure for somebody to, to launch like an entire career and lifelong love for the hobby, uh, an adventure that tells you don't actually kill the Siswa because they're ensorcelled by the evil witch. So you don't even get the idea of what a dungeon delve, a traditional dungeon delve right. looks like. You're, right. you're going into this in a, in a, in a different way. Uh, now, of course, I being sixth grade, yeah, you just kill the Siswa. It doesn't really matter. You can sort, <laughs> sort it out later. But um, yeah, so anyway, uh, flash forward to after the, uh, the passages experience, we uh, I was staying the night at his house. He's like, we're going to make a D&D &D character tonight. And I was like, all right, I can't wait. So excited. Yeah. We're sitting around the table and we're, we're doing our, our thing. And Lane is just kind of going through like, all right, the very first thing you've got to do is you've got to roll your ability scores. And so like, which dice? It's like, how do I tell what's an eight-sider, what's a ten-sider and all that stuff? And I'm rolling and then we go to neat. At some point, he says, here, just let me. And so he took over, and I'm just sitting there, a witness to what would be, uh, you know, the start of my D&D &D, uh, career. So I thought, so by the time we were done, it was like, can we just talk about comic books? And that's how it ended. It was like, really like the Defenders and the X-Men and all that stuff. And so we did that. And so um, the next weekend, he invited me over. And uh, there were supposed to be three kids that were going to play D&D. And we were going to go through Keep in the Borderlands, and it was <laughs> Landon running, myself, uh, my friend Jonathan was supposed to be there, but he couldn't make it. And so it was this other kid named Travis, who I have no idea what happened to Travis. 
So Travis had two characters, Nastron and Stick Fingers. <laughs> it's uh, so funny you remember this, Robert. Uh, yeah, it's weird. And then I had uh, I had Ator, uh, the, the actually he was called Booger first. Uh, Booger <laughs> and Pardue, the wizard, who I named after the wizard from Monsters and Mazes. Nice. Uh, so even then, even at that early date, I was still trash talking the the man, the establishment, sure uh, by by stealing their thunder. Anyway, so we played and we played for about a minute, and I said, "Oh no, 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 no! We can't call this guy Booger. I'm just scratch his name out, name him. I don't know, Ator." And so I find this plus one two handed sword, and Travis says, "You got a sword, man. The most important thing you got to do, though, is you got to name it." And I was like, "All right." So we thought about what to name it. It became the Flamberge. <laughs> and so at some point I was so excited about playing the game. I only wanted to play one character. I threw a spear through my wizard's chest to just free me up. So I could completely <laughs> immerse myself in the experience of playing D&D. And that became the story, right? I mean, that was, that was, uh, it hooked me and it was all I talked about and drove my parents crazy. My dad, uh, eventually brought home a bunch of books um and i eventually got the other books that i needed and i had the red box and i had the nice. D stuff and all that stuff and then you know my mom decided you know rob i really just don't like this dungeon dragon stuff and i'm like mom oh, wow. just, we're, just, we're just we're just just in our imagination we're playing it's all you talk about rob this is you're obsessed with it. it's all you want to do all you because i'm thinking and i'm thinking about the adventures we're going on and all this, these aren't real people rob i think this is satanic <laughs> The devil is trying to get into your soul. And, yeah, so, and, and, and younger readers, Robert, won't remember that period of time where yeah. they, what I was at, that was about 80s or well, to get into the 90s. So it's more of the 80s. Yeah, because it was uh, it lasted until uh, what's her name finally uh, died at 49. I was researching that the other day for some reason. Not really sure why I was researching, but I was. Yeah, but but the, it was it was a scare. It was one of those, you know, those right. cult scares. Well, you know, and that's when they thought that, you know, you'd back, back mask uh, records so you could have hidden yep. messages. And, you know, what was so funny is that they, my mom and my grandmother, even these many years later, the fact that I work in the business and everything, it's still satanic. Isn't that something? No kidding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And, so, and I mean, and it happened with comic books and then it happened with role playing games, too, and then just kind yeah. of vanished. So mom is telling you, no, Robert, you're not going to do this. And what is your reaction to that? Well, I said, all right, Mom, I still want to play role-playing games, but can I play other games? As long as it's not Dungeons and Dragons, because I hear they teach you how to summon devils, to cast spells, to cast curses, and it's all about killing. I was like, all right, Mom, no problem. I'll, I'll, we'll play something else. So uh, that was kind of the – this was a, a blessing in disguise, not, uh, and in, in, the, in the sense that what happened was that Landon was certainly disappointed that we couldn't play D&D anymore. Sure. But, Landon also had a closet full of other role-playing games that included everything from Champions Twilight 2000. I also was collecting role-playing games like a fiend. So we played everything. Oh, that's great. Everything that wasn't D&D, we played. And uh, around the same time, uh, I guess it was a few years later, uh, we were there was a game store in Nashville that we would go to called Games Extraordinaire. And at Games Extraordinaire, uh, we became friendly with the owners and we played there every weekend. And that's where I discovered Paranoia, and we played <laughs> Battletech in the store. There was Car Wars tournaments. Um, oh, God. We're I mean, old. We I remember all right? this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I remember because, you know, I thought, I think back, it was like I had such a hard time just having the patience to sit through making a red box D&D &D character. 
And then you flash forward a couple of years later, I'm making entire Starfleet crews with right. the FASA Star Trek rules. Yeah. Where I was like, I'm not sure how many ranks of, uh, I need to order whatever it is, levels of Abraham Lincoln history I need to have. But damn it, I'm going to have more than James T. Kirk. So, sure. Uh, you know, it was because it was that kind of madness, right? So we played it all and we played uh, Villains of Vigilantes, Champions, but the big game that we kind of kind of stole all the thunder from everything else was Marvel Superheroes by Jeff Grubb. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, we played the heck out of that. Because I was, I was at that time, I had thought that I was going to become a comic book artist like all sorts of kids thought they would do. Yeah. Because, you know, apparently in this world, everything's got to have a hustle. And so I got, I got, it was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And of course I haven't picked up a pen since high school, but whatever. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we, we, I played a lot of stuff and then, you know, we, it just kind of continued. And eventually I found there were games that were edgier and darker than D and D and we played Warhammer fantasy role play. And, uh, and then eventually went back to D and D and just said, mom, just, just leave me alone. Yeah, I'm an adult now. So, so back in high school, then, um, I mean, you expanded way beyond Dungeons and Dragons at that point. So, I'd be curious for you, Robert, when you look back on those years, right? So, those are the years that really it sounds like cemented your love of the game. What was it, as an adult looking back, what was it that grabbed you? Um, that obviously it's it, it the hook sank, right? Right. Um, I think early on there was a lot of. I think it was for me that it was the hobby side of it. Uh, it was in the, in the sense that I liked, I, I originally was hooked on the idea that my character was going to get continually get more and more powerful. And so we could fight tougher and tougher monsters and get bigger and bigger treasure. And you know, you, you start at a certain point, you say, well, it's time for us to graduate to deities and demigods. And we're going to start killing everything in those books. Uh, and that gets ridiculous, but that's what I think a lot of kids did then. Sure. Um, but as I grew older, I was more interested in building the long story and building the world. Uh, I can't, I can't even begin to tell you how many hours I put into drawing continents on hex maps, where I would yeah. draw a single little tree in a little yeah. hex and make giant forests and have all the stuff and then build the history. Uh, at one point in high school, this is back when I was running D anD D. I had uh, up to twenty players in my attic. Uh, we were all playing during a snow day, much like we're having today. Uh, and people risked their lives to come and play D&D in my attic. We played all day. And it was fantastic because yeah. their characters would come to life in your mind. And you think about what kinds of ways you want to see them fit into the story and what ways you'll challenge them. And I, I, there was a point when I, I shifted, and it was relatively early in the, in the process, where I went from a player to a dungeon master, a game master. and it was a game mastery thing that that really kind of kept me involved and hungry for more. Now, was that a classic situation that I hear all the time where uh, we needed someone to run a game, so I said, I'll do it? Or did you find yourself being attracted to running games? Um, I, for the very first time I ran a D&D game was for Landon, and that went so bad because I didn't <laughs> understand that killing a character was arbitrarily wasn't a narrative device it was actually an attack on the it was it was bad right because the sure. players invested uh this isn't so that was the first lesson i learned and then after that uh i kind of figured it out but um no after my parents divorced uh my mom eventually moved us out of uh our town and moved us to murfreesboro which is strangely where i still live all these many millions of years later <laughs> um and 
I just wanted a gaming group and it, and I, so I put up uh, a notice. I had, I had done the same thing in Nashville. I put up a notice at the games, uh, great escape looking for players. And I found a few, but then I moved to uh, this town, which found a comic book store and posted a notice on their, their board. And yep. of course it was obviously pre-internet. So people who went to go buy their comic books or buy gaming stuff, they saw it and I made a whole bunch of friends. And cool. what's kind of fun about that is that I still talk to these people all yeah. these years later. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, hearing you uh, regale and remember the name of your first character and the name of his sword. It's one of the things I talk to people about that don't play role-playing games, that, that the memories just, they become your own myth and, yeah. and they just get, they just get ingrained in your game. And it's something very unique uh, about this form of tabletop gaming. So you're, you're in high school, Robert. And at some point you transition from player to GM, but also at some point you start to transition into creator. Um, now, now granted yours is a little bit unique because you started off as a creator right, <laughs> right. but but when did when did you start to think you know boy oh boy i i think i want to make worlds i think i want to do stuff and not beyond what all of us did as a kid right you know filling out the hex maps um we all did that but at some point something else happened robert when did that happen well the, the you know, I, I never had aspirations to do this as a career that was never that was never part of the the thing I'd always thought I would either, you know, I'd become a painter or a comic book illustrator or a photographer or whatever. Uh, but I never thought that I was going to go this way because I viewed it just wasn't just wasn't attainable. It just was not sure. an attainable goal. Um, but building things and creating entire histories and pantheons of gods and interweaving characters, this just became part of the process. Yep. And it, uh, and it was a process that continued from my high school games and, and in fact, going all the way back to my childhood, you know, a lot of those stories were kind of all tied into one overarching world that was a shared creation thing that, that carried us through uh, until the very uh, early days of third edition uh, wow. D&D. So we played through all of that. Um, but yes, yeah, so, I mean, even towards uh, even when I had moved after high school, I was still I would still end up drinking beers and draw giant maps of, of continents and places. And I'd illustrate characters that were in the adventures that we were <laughs> player characters and stuff like that. And we um, write up elaborate backstories and just all those kind of things, because it was all part of what we did. It was what we, sure. it was, you know, I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford cable at that time. I was a <laughs> yeah. McDonald's. I was, I mean, I was, I was shoveling meat in the buns at McDonald's and, uh, that was and so what we did on the weekends we just get drunk and play D &D. Yeah. and uh it was fun so when was the first time you made a dollar uh in the industry well like what what was the first entrance uh so i guess it, well third edition had come out and i had uh dropped i had dropped out of college and went back to college and after going back to college i was uh pursuing an english and philosophy degree i wrapped up my thesis uh which ended up being like a hundred and hundred thousand words Wow. Um, so I knew I could actually write something, right. um, uh, but, uh, I didn't know I could write professionally and I still don't think I could up until a certain point in my career, but whatever. Uh, so D and D was still in its infinite, uh, D and D third was still pretty early. It was pre 3.5. Um, there, uh, the D 20 system as a product idea or something that you could make content for the D20 system and have yep. it be related to D&D &D, took the industry by storm. And you're seeing every company 
under the sun is getting involved in, D, in the D20 system in some way. And some play, some ways, I think some of those choices were interesting. Some yeah. of them were pretty, uh, in the sense that I never would have put, I would never would have married Call of Cthulhu with a D20 system. But at the time, you can get away with it. And I ran yep. plenty of D20 Call of Cthulhu in a good time. Um, so we did all that. Uh, but it, uh, there was a company called uh, Mongoose Publishing, and uh, they were they posted an open call for writers. And I was a regular reader at EN World, which is like before was before it was EN World. It was Eric Noah's D and D page, uh, and then I saw the posting for writers looking for writers. So I sent a pitch, and I, they bought my first book, and then I sent them another pitch. They bought my second book, um, and then I was supposed to do a third book, and then that kind of fell apart. So I switched gears and I started hitting the uh, other publishers. And so I worked with Green Ronin Publishing early on with the Unholy Warriors Handbook. And that led to the Book of Fiends and a bunch of other things with them. Uh, after my first convention at Origins, I slapped a lot of skin and met a lot of people. And I went <laughs> to work with uh, Paradigm Concepts and AEG and, um, uh, let's see, Fantasy Flight. Um, and I tried to get in with Paizo for a long time, but that didn't ever really... I think I had one small project with them where I did an assassin NPC and then I didn't really get really much work from them until I was already doing freelance work with wizards. Interesting. And during this whole time you were freelance, right? Or did you actually work for Green Ronin for a while or? Yes. Uh, I started, I shifted gears uh, for at the time I was trying to make a living doing freelancing and to understand how hard that is. Uh, companies at that point were paying between, half a cent a word to four cents a word. Uh, wow. And, you know, what's scary is that companies are still paying four cents a word. And I've been in this for almost 20 years. Amazing. Uh, so you're looking back at that time and they were paying 20 cents, a word, they were paying four cents a word 20 years before that. Or So it hadn't yeah. been, it's been pretty static. Um, and so in order for me to be able to make ends meet, I had to take on every project I could. And uh, there was a, a that first year was really difficult because I ended up working 60 to 80 hours a week, sure. just pumping out words just to try to make enough money to justify the expenditures. Um, Green Renin hired me shortly after the Book of Fiends uh, project and brought me in as a D20 line developer at the same time I was working on the Black Company campaign setting. Very, very cool. We're, well, we're going to dive into that kind of that period of time after the break. But um, the whole purpose of this uh, Insider Insights is it gives me the opportunity to bring writers, designers, developers, artists and other tabletop gaming insiders to talk about what they do, why they do and to kind of pull back the curtain on how and what they create. Now, Robert has had a huge impact on so many cornerstones of role playing. And I was really hoping to get an idea of your progress uh, uh, as a creator. So we're going to try to learn Robert's path. Um, what has been his approach how's that approach as a creator changed over time and then we're going to finish digging into what i'm really excited to talk about and that is some of his more recent work including shadow of the demon lord so we're going to take a quick break we'll be right back this episode is brought to you by visit williamsburg in williamsburg virginia there's never too much of a good thing whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Howdy friends, Craig here. You deserve a new play mat. Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free, That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. So now we get an idea, kind of the early years, um, where, uh, you know, Robert started off playing and that turned into running and that turned into, holy cow, I can write because I wrote a thesis in college. And, uh, you know, he's now, you know, freelance and, and, and try to make a living at it. And, but Robert, you tell me about the, uh, the, the, it's shocking, the, 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 the pay freeze, essentially, that's been in the place for 15, 20 years. That's crazy. When did you um, really start spending more time with green Ronin. So how did, how did that start? And when did it become a, a full-time position for you? Uh, I, I, there was a the year before, I guess it was maybe six, eight months before I went to my first origins to try to drum up work. Uh, I had sold the Unholy Warriors handbook to the, uh, to Chris Pramus and uh, the rest in Ronin's. Um, and and it was because largely it was because uh, Mongu said they didn't want to do an anti-paladin book. And right. The Ronins were said, yeah, we totally want to do that because we've just released the Book of the Righteous, uh, which has the Holy Warrior in it. This would be a really great companion piece to that product. So great, fantastic. Let's do it. Uh, so we, I went to uh, Columbus for the for that Origins, and you know, I'm terrified, right? I mean, just sure. just terrified because I guess I was, I might have still been in my 20s, my late 20s at that point, yep. and uh, and I just, I didn't know any of these people, right? I, and and First of all, and second of all, these were my gods. Right. I was I was on the doorstep of, uh, of Olympus, and yep. I am now you know I'm and as I'm walking around the hall, you know, oh, look, there's Jim Ward, and uh, there's <laughs> there's Ed Greenwood, and there's Matt Forbeck, and all these other people that I've just these are the people who enriched my life all the yep. year, you know, as I was coming up as as I got to that point. So uh, Chris and I, I bought Chris lunch over at this uh, Irish pub across the street. Uh, they had the best pierogies that I've had at a restaurant. So it was really wonderful. But we went over there and we talked and we ended up talking for like two hours. No kidding. And uh, Chris liked what I did with the Unholy Warriors handbook. And they were all about giving me more work, which led to the Asimar and Tiefling book and Cavalier's handbook and a couple other things. And Book of Fiends really went well. And uh, so I felt like I was, things were cooking. And yep. he finally said that, you know, they were going to bring you on for uh, the Black Company book. Uh, that was with Owen Stevens uh, and um, Scott Gearin 
and Shane Ivey. So we had the, our group that we're supposed to tackle this book. And so Chris finally was a look, because uh, I had guessed that they were getting the Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay licensed. And he was like, how did you possibly guess that? It was like, well, I just figured that 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 was the the only thing of value right now that's not being done. And Hogshead yep. had lost their rights to it. So, you know, why not? Well, anyway, it turned out that they were working on that. So Chris took over. Uh, he left his role as a D20 line developer and gave that job to me while he worked on developing, designing the, the Warhammer 2nd Edition. The thing about working for the Ronins was that uh, it wasn't just a job. These people became very much my family away from home. Uh, yeah. And, you know, for anybody who's coming into like a, like a profession like this one, there's a lot of imposter syndrome going on, right? Where I don't think I belong. I certainly don't feel like I belong here. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm just figuring this out as I go. Yeah. And they made me feel like a valued member of the company and family. And I learned a lot working with, with Chris and with Steve Kenson and uh, Hal Mangold, who does production, uh, Nicole Lindrews, I mean, and Evan Sass, who's a web, or a web guy, and Mark Schmaltz and all the other people who worked for the Ronins at the time. And as I became more comfortable in my role, uh, you know, I was still working 68 hours a week because I was also sure. freelancing on the side. Um, I felt like it was an opportunity for me to hone my craft and get a better idea of what I was doing. Because I think there's a difference between having system mastery and then translating system mastery into being a game designer. Like you can be really good at something like, I know the ins and outs of third edition back then. I knew it, I would challenge just about anybody on on the intricacies of that particular game. Now I'm super rusty. I haven't played it in sure. years. But um, there's a sense that you're making a lot of new content for these games because the games are, at least at that point, uh, games tend to be more open-ended as far as what you could add to it. And D&D third edition created a lot of, mechanical buckets that we could fill with feats and prestige classes, spells, and right. all sorts of and monsters and everything else you normally do. So my job just became so much of just creating content for these things. And that just kind of the, the thing I was doing, but it taught me a lot about the publication process and, you know, what is valuable and what's not valuable as far as um, new content for the game. Uh, you know, you know, one wants a, a touch skill, for example, um, but you know, you, anyway, I, I, I'm off, I'm off base there. But the other thing, the other part of working with the Ronins was that they entrusted, uh, some fairly important properties, uh, to my stewardship. And one of those was the black company campaign setting, but on its heels was Thieves World, uh, mm. which Lynn Abbey at the time had launched, had relaunched Thieves World with the Sanctuary book and a new, uh, two books that were anthologies in the style of the original Thieves World books. Uh, and then eventually it became a song of ice and fire. Right. Um, now while all these are going on, I've taken on the Warhammer fantasy roleplay, uh, IP and it was managing that with my friends at, uh, games workshop, their subsidiary company was called black industries. And yep. they were the publisher. We were the design studio for them. So I was working with them on Warhammer stuff. I was working on the D 20 stuff that was still going on. And I was working on a song of ice and fire at some point. And still doing freelance work because I was working <laughs> with Wizards of the Coast while this was going on. The fact that my wife stayed with me after all of this is is, is really shocking. But uh, I bet we I survived. Bet. 
So I'd be curious, Robert, you, you kind of hinted at, and I want to dig into it a little bit more. You, you talked about a difference between being just a content creator, right? A, a writer, it sounds like, and, and filling those, those buckets and a designer and, and a developer. W- what is that jump? W- what's the chasm between the two? And when did you jump? Uh, so like, I think the, none of these jobs are easy um, because uh, in a content creator, you're looking for sometimes you're looking for holes to film. Right. Right. It's like, what did the original design team miss on the first pass? What can I film? The problem was with, with the D20 system at the time was that we're working not only uh, to keep pace with what's coming out of Wizards of the Coast, but what everybody else in the industry is doing. And so you get crazy. Yeah. You get crazy feats. Like if you were standing on the least side of a mountain, the thunderstorm and you're wielding a bludgeoning weapon, you get a plus two bonus armor class. It's like, no, what what is even happening here? Yeah. I mean, uh, and then there are times when you start thinking about like, well, and then you see you just struggle as you're trying to stretch the game to, you know, just justify your own existence and you're trying to pump out more and more stuff. Now the game design aspect as when I think where it started for me was when I was having to adapt uh, the D20 system for different genres or different stories, different worlds. So like, for example, in the Black Company campaign setting, which is early in my career, um, I had to build a, uh, the magic system of the books just was not what the Vancean system at all. It's, right. it's free form, it's spontaneous, and it reflects your imagination. Now, if I was going back to do it again, I would probably attack it a different way. Yep. But the way I dealt with it at the time was a super complex mechanical thing where the DC spiral way out of control, but you get these control points, which are magic point type things that you're then spending to get these big chunky bonuses to your role. And so you sculpt the spells as you play. And usually you have a few of them prepared ahead of time. So you figure out what you want to do. You get the math ahead of time, but it gives you the free form experience and it was fun and it's super cumbersome and I would never want to play that again. <laughs> but sure. then, uh, but like then I did with these world, we took we adapted what Sovereign Stone had done with their system to try to make magic more of a slow build where you're building up the energy is necessary to cast a spell. And so those were those were instances where I am warping D and D to fit uh, the IP we're working with, um, with Song of a Song of Ice and Fire, and also with Witch Hunter for Paradigm Concepts. I was building role playing games from scratch. Right now. In hindsight, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. Sure. Uh, I mean, I, the, I'm delighted that people are still playing Chronicle System today. Uh, that's the engine that powers Song of Ice and Fire. And I know Witch Hunters made it through two or three editions based on the work that I did the first time. And it's great. But it's the heights of hubris. I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, yeah. I knew what I knew the math. I knew I could build the math. I could build the underlying architecture. But I didn't understand. I didn't. I don't think I really. I think I was designing from the hip, mostly. Right. Um, and I don't think that makes these. I mean, and, I, and you're always more critical about the stuff you make. I'm sure. I, I, yeah. I'm sure for me at least. Um, and I know that people had fun with these games, but again, if I could go back and do them again, it would be a completely different process. But the thing was, the thing about those properties and those projects, they taught me to look at systems rather than specific instances or buckets of the engine got it and when you're working holistic on the entire engine and you're working you're trying to find all the uh the expressions of the engine and trying to make the engine do things that you want to see happen in play those were all valuable lessons that i i, I learned from those uh those early efforts 
When you were talking about it, Robert, you made it clear that you're trying to capture a feeling, right? Trying to capture a feeling of the IP in each of those instances. Um, How do you measure whether you're doing that or not? Is it a situation where you try a mechanic and then play for a while and go, yeah, it doesn't really feel like the book? Or uh, what does that process look like? Uh, it's cha- for, for me now, it's changed quite a bit. At the time, like uh, with A Song of Ice and Fire, we knew uh, ahead of time that we had to build a game that lets you to- tell a very peculiar type story. And uh, because Song of Ice and Fire is not, the, the IP doesn't lend itself to a ensemble type cast in the sense right. that, hey, we're a merry band of characters that are going to do things. Rather, what it does do is it gives you, uh, it, it zooms in on a bunch of different characters and different points of view. But what are the one thing that the character you can do and tell stories about where it would be more ensemble based is if you start from the idea that you're all members of the same noble family right. or their retainers. And that gives you a sense of place and a sense of purpose that's unified. And then it also build mechanics around those characters and their relationship with their house so that their lands are important, the soldiers they have are important, the crops are growing important, the relationships they make with their houses, all the things that just kind of breed um, uh, adventures and stories. Um, and so that was that kind of led the design in that case. Uh, with uh, like the Thieves' World uh, magic system, where we were trying to make a slow build, I'm not sure how successful that was. I think in some ways it was successful, uh, but I think that it came out at, at a time when people are still wanting to be able the immediate fireball. They don't right. want to think about setting up the, 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 the heist because a lot of it's, it's called thieves world. So you're, you're criminals and you're not going to just bust down a door and throw fireballs. You want to build up your spell and you want to have your things all in place beforehand. And that was what I was kind of aiming for at, 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 at that time. But, you know, again, this is also 15 years ago, so we're, we're longer. Yeah, and, and that changes over time. Now, I'd be curious, So, and correct me if I misunderstood this, it sounds like uh, Chris kind of started and owned the Warhammer property, and then it, it gradually moved over um, into your arms. What is that like being handed something like that? So something that has been, has been built um, and constructed, and now you're responsible for it terrifying it was <laughs> terrifying uh i mean I, people have asked me in the past in, in previous interviews you know what what's your motive what motivates you and it's fear uh yeah. it, it's fear of failure and fear of disappointing uh the people i work for and where i work with uh warhammer getting i mean i played the heck out of first edition warhammer i didn't play through i didn't play through everything that came out for warhammer and i wasn't around warhammer during the hogshead era uh, but I was there during the game's workshop days and I knew the game well enough. Um, Chris designed a slick, updated, modernized version of the first edition rules. Uh, we, during his time, he did, he oversaw the uh, the Heirs of Sigmar book, which was the, which was kind of a gazetteer book. We did a trilogy of adventures um, with uh, uh, David Chart, Graham Davis, uh, uh, yeah, Graham Davis and myself. Uh, there were a couple other things that we did too. And I started off slowly. I worked on the Carrick Asgold book, which is a big dwarf structure, uh, hold fast type thing. And uh, I was on board for the Realms of Sorcery book uh, as a development on, uh, on that stage. 
But from that point on, I was, Chris would had already shifted gears to be working on uh, what would become Dark Heresy. And so I was in contact with uh, Nottingham on a daily basis. And so it was back and forth discussing what projects we we're going to do. And we, uh, the first, after the first year of me working on that, we swept the Ennies that year. Uh, everything, every category we were in, we won. That's and awesome. it was it was great uh, because it was it was so validating to see even crazy products like uh, the Warhammer uh, the Woofrip Companion, which is just a, sor- a series of short article length uh, entries that just kind of expand the world in interesting ways. So here's a section of constellations, or here's a section on uh, new guns, or whatever else. So we did all those kinds of things, uh, and it worked out. It, it worked out well enough. It, and the game line had lasted long enough that we were uh, in the process of at least talking about third edition Warhammer. Yeah. Um, before uh, it all reverted back to Black Industries, um, I think uh, the the time I spent at Warhammer was um, challenging because I inherited a game system that was because I was still deeply, deeply in love with D anD D at that time. God, I hadn't, I hadn't, even though I'd played so many other games and enjoyed all those other games, D&D was still my first love. And right. if Chris had said, just make stuff for d and I would have been, I would have made, I would have been, I would have my writing, my word output by probably 50% above what I was doing. Wow. Um, so there was kind of, there was, there was some frustration on the Warhammer front because there were elements that we were kind of locked into that I, that were, that were sometimes difficult. Uh, because you had um, an, a very an IP that was long in the tooth, and yep. Warhammer is a working on Warhammer products up until a certain point. I think recently it's changed, but trying to nail down what Warhammer fantasy is is impossible because yep. it it changes with every edition of the Battles game. It changes depending on when you're going into the game. Uh, the Hogshead era is slightly different from the original release, and uh, you know, do you, how do you reconcile lizard folks and the old world, right? You, you just kept try to do all those things together and it's very difficult. Um, so we, you know, between inheriting a game system that probably, that wasn't mine, uh, and then having to master that game system and yeah. then having to reconcile the constant effort of trying to, uh, link together the various interpretations of the Warhammer world was, was a challenge, but it was, but I learned so much. Now, I'd be curious, because this is the other side of it. It then, if I understand things correctly, Warhammer then drifts off back to Black Library. Then it drifts over to uh, Fantasy Flight, right? And then it becomes, uh, was it third or fourth edition that Fantasy Flight played? It was third edition, edition. right? Yeah, Yeah, third edition. Jay Little uh, comes up with a narrative dice and really kind of changes how the game is played completely. Do you just let that ship sail and say, you know, hey, knock yourself out. I don't really care anymore. Or... Did you keep track of your kid as as your kid wandered off? Uh, I was not happy. Um, yeah, it was because uh, you know I had a thirty thousand words of whatever third edition on my hard drive at home, and then I see that it's been completely overhauled uh, with yep. proprietary dice and doing things that at the time were rather forward thinking and revolutionary. Yeah, um, but you know it was it was unsettling and. You know, you also encounter the same stuff that, you know, a lot of people will have to, in order to sell their new edition, they have to tear down the one that came before. And every time that people do that, they always end up chewing on their foot 
because it worried that happened with with Watsi at fourth edition. It happened with War third edition Warhammer. It's happened over and over and over again. Eventually, people are going to figure out. Don't trash on the people who came before you. Right. Celebrate it and say we're doing something new. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was. It was tricky. Um, so I was. I, I bought the box, uh, the the third edition box, and I bought the companion thing. It was. It looked neat. Um, I never played it. Um, I'd like to one day uh, break it open and actually give it a spin. Um, but at that point, uh, you know, right around that same time, uh, third edition starting to wind down, and you know, the storm clouds of fourth edition are starting to build on the horizon. And that's when, you know, I, I made my transition away from the Ronins and to working for Wizards of the Coast. Well, Robert, it's like you've got an outline in front of you. That's the perfect transition for this next break. <laughs> so, folks, when we get back, we're going to talk about his transition to working for the monster, Wizards of the Coast, and all of the amazing work he did there. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm James Hahn, and I'm a patron of Third Floor Wars because I'm a henchman who loses most of his games, and the podcast has tons of valuable information to improve your play as well as what to expect from other crews. You can support them too. The link is in the show notes, or just search for Third Floor Wars on Patreon.com. What is it worth to you to get this podcast on a weekly basis? Is it worth a dollar a month? $5 a month? $20 a month? If you'd like to help support the work that we're doing here on Third Floor Wars, please go buy our Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash thirdfloorwars. There you can pledge at any level, any dollar amount. Whatever you give us will help us put out quality content on a regular basis and hopefully make tabletop gaming a little bit better for you every week. Time to give a shout out to our newest patrons. A big special thanks goes to James Kahn, Rage Quit Wire, Deck Roll, Aloy, Robo Rotten, Jacob Suderman, Joshua Hatch, Donald Kroger, John Fox, and David Gadea. Because of you and the 100 plus that are supporting us on Patreon, we're able to put out regular content on a weekly basis. We appreciate it. So Robert's already kind of established himself in um, really, you know, a, a big a big mover in the industry. I mean, Green Ronin today is still huge um, and um, still puts out um, a lot of stuff. But at some point, Robert, you start, I don't know how it starts. So what point do you start talking to Wizards? Wizards starts talking to you. When does that dance begin? It was at Gen Con, um, the year that we we won all the Ennies for the work on Warhammer Fantasy II. Um, I had not been able to get my foot in the door at Wizards of the Coast at all. Uh, I hadn't tried very hard, but I had just just couldn't get I couldn't get my foot in the door. I was uh, and I, one of my good friends at the time is also a freelancer, and we worked together on multiple projects. Rodney Thompson uh, and I were hanging out like we did at every convention, and uh, I said, "Can he been getting work for for Wizards?" It's like, man, can you introduce me to Chris Perkins? Because I, I don't know what I'm, I don't know if I'm radioactive or what, but can we do something there? And so, um, so sure enough, I was at the booth and he brought Chris Perkins by. We shook hands, said, "Yeah, I'll be in touch." And then, what I, I was like a week later, I had my first gig, and it was no kidding, Tome of Magic. And so, I'm still working for the Ronins at this time, and started working on Song of Ice and Fire yet. But uh, they gave me Tome of Magic, and Tome of Magic was an interesting project because it had. 
three principal designers, each trying to reinvent D&D's magic system along a thematic thing. So Ari had shadow magic, uh, Matt had go, uh, go, Goetics, uh, Gosha uh, symbols, and uh, the binder, and then uh, Noonan had true, uh, true names and true naming magic. And my job on this project, and which I, I still find just charming, uh, was we want you to do all of the stuff they don't want you to. They don't want to do themselves. <laughs> Great. So you need to write the adventures content and do all the maps and you know just do that stuff. And it's it's fine. So uh, I did, and I had several con- uh, conversations with Matt Sernet. Uh, we had met a few times before because Matt worked uh, did some work for the Renans as well. Um, so Matt had a, we would end this back with AOL instant messenger. We'd <laughs> go back and forth on, on aim and uh, talking about the different symbols and trying to come up with a proper word that, you know, can we use talismans? Like, no, we can't use talismans because talismans first appears in third edition in James White's Oriental Ventures book. It's like, Oh right. crap. I can't believe we use talismans there. And so uh, we, we figured it out. Uh, book comes out and they're happy. I'm happy. And I'd like, I really like getting Wizards of the Coast money. And so that led to more work. Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of work. Uh, I became pretty good friends with Gwendolyn Kestrel and she kept me supplied uh, with jobs. So I, I guess I worked on, I'm looking back over my shoulder, uh, Drow of the Inner Dark, um, Monster Annual 5, uh, one of the complete books. I should, some of my stuff showed up in there. Uh, and it just kind of snowballed. And eventually uh, they gave me uh, exemplars of evil and elder evils in the last two books. And basically for those, these were clear indicators that D&D was getting ready to transition to a new edition. And why was that? There's some very serious tells, right? If you do a dungeon book, that's, that's usually your last book for the edition. Interesting. Almost always. Um, if you do like big, if you give an outsider from the company, the lead designer position on, uh, on a hardback, also a good sign there's a new edition coming. Interesting. So, for Exemplars of Evil, I had, uh, about half the book and then there were other freelancers, largely many of whom were working with Paizo at the time. Uh, and then that was also true for, uh, Elder Evils. Uh, and Bruce Cordell, fun fact, uh, Bruce Cordell was the one who was probably should have been the lead on that book because he already sketched out what was going to be in it. And so wow. he just gave us the outline and then we went from there and then I, you know, it all kind of, uh, uh unfold from there. But those books were fun. Um, yep. then, uh, I flew out to, uh, Seattle, uh, and met, uh, with Rodney Thompson. Uh, this was right around the time when Star Wars saga was just kind of coming about. Um, and they offered us basically, they didn't offer us, but they offered us, would you be, would you accept positions in the company basically, but not in so many words. Sure. Uh, I couldn't because my wife has, uh, put concrete shoes on my feet. And so, uh, and largely it's been, and it was for the best because her, her parents are older and they, at the time they were in good health They're not now, but, uh, at the time, uh, it would have been very difficult. Sure. Um, and so Rodney was, he was five years, six years younger than me. Uh, he wasn't married yet and he could do whatever the hell he wanted. And yeah. so he took the job and, and uh, took over Star Wars. Wizards of the Coast offered me a full-time uh, contract position to work on fourth edition content. 
And so I transitioned from working on third edition, went through the crash course of learning fourth and moved on to that. And so that was where I started working on uh, Draconomicon, the Forgotten Realms Player's Guide. And then apparently it turned out because I was doing so much, they had me at 50,000 words a month. Uh, wow. So I'd be curious, Robert, what was your initial feelings and take on fourth edition? Because it's a pretty controversial edition of the game. You're somebody who's been playing it for forever, and it's been your love since the beginning of time. What was your take when you first came across what they were doing with fourth? Um, uh, right. Um, it was troubling. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny when you think about the things you just love. You just love you, you, you it, it, to the point when it's a passion for you that is as strong as the most heated sensual relationship you'd have with another person. Yep. Uh, I can remember having a dream about what the new Star Wars movie is going to be like. This is episode one. Uh, and just thinking how awesome it was going to be and being just gutted yeah. coming out of it. Yep. I had similar feelings regarding fourth edition and a lot of my fourth edition consider feelings were, you know, they're doing this very much black box. This is a game that's sort of been moved into the open. There's a lot of people who've been working on this and a lot of people's livelihoods depend on, uh, on the OGL uh, at that time. Maybe not so much as they do as, as the industry survived, obviously, but um, sure. I was pretty shocked uh, by the degree of changes, um, and it took me a, it took me about a minute to really get my head around it, um, because I you know in hindsight again I under, I understand what the intent was. Right. Third edition, everything that needed to be said about D and D had been said in third edition. And there were things that didn't need to be said about D&D that showed <laughs> right. up in third edition, right? I mean, there are plenty yeah. of books that probably should never have been made that were yeah. just like... Especially when you're talking about the D20 world, but yeah. Oh, yeah. There's so many things that... Just, oh, that's funny. So, I mean, anyway, you know, how do you stay relevant? And yeah. how do you stay relevant and, and make a game that appeals to the next generation of gamers who, at the time... There was no, uh, there was no retro thing going on. You know, you didn't have stoner rock bands singing about D and D songs, yeah. right? No OSR, no nothing. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, there was just people were done with yep. Gygaxi and fantasy, and it was not. And so, if in that mindset, you got well, we don't have to keep these sacred cows anymore because that audience is already well served with everything we've published. Well, we've got to. Yeah, so, yeah. The other part of that is we're the first generation too, right? This is the first generational handover too, which is a big yeah. deal because our parents didn't give us role playing. We right, created right. role playing. When I say we, the generation created role playing. This is the first time that anybody I think really made a and, and like fourth or not, I give Wizards credit for saying, you know, we we got to get some new blood in here. We got We right. got to change this game. But I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it, it's it's an interesting point that you what your point is is you know you, you got to hand it over so uh, how do you how do you digest that though because it's so different than what you grew up with right well i mean the the as i you know as i was saying it's like the industry the, the hobby the gamers the enthusiasts we're all starting to gray are, are graying yeah and so we're now getting ready to we're getting to the point where at that point i think that there was this expectation that this would be how do you tap into this next 
market. And the way you do that is by getting rid of canon. So you for, dump Forgotten Realms back history because no one wants to digest all that stuff to be current. Yeah. Just give us a new world, right? But it's got to be Forgotten Realms because it's got to have key elements in order to make it appealing. Uh, and it's not to dis, it's not disparaging the people who built all this stuff before. At the time, it felt that way. Right. Uh, at the time, it felt like they're just throwing away all their audience because uh, they just don't give a shit about us. But what's really happening is like, no, we have to stay relevant and we have to, and, and how we stay relevant is that kids come to fantasy, not by Lord of the Rings. Yep. They do, but that window's closed. The movies Good have point. already come out. Yeah. So what, so what is, you know, the kids are coming to D and D or fantasy by way of anime and by uh, manga and by comic books and by a variety of other sources, video, video games. games. And yep. largely video games, right? Yeah. So if you can do some really cool stuff with my fighter in a video game, then darn it, our, our role-playing game should give you that and better. Yep. Now, at the time, as I said, I felt like, what do you mean there are no elemental planes of air, earth, fire, and water? What do you mean that the quasi-elemental planes are gone? What do you mean <laughs> there's no negative energy plane? What do you mean there's no great wheel? Yeah. And what happened to Greyhawk? Why isn't Greyhawk? <laughs> what are you doing to my game? And what, Psionics? We don't even talk about Psionics? I yeah. Mean, so, right. And I mean, it's there, but, uh, and so there was a struggle to, uh, and I always felt like, what ways can I be, can honor my job and the great income I was getting for the hard work I was getting, but honor the legacy right. and make us look like good custodians of something that is owned by the audience because people consume D&D in a different way than they do other other things. You may put in five gazillion hours in the world of Warcraft, but there's but you have no illusion that that is your game. Yep, you just good play point. It. Yeah. But if you buy these books and you're making up your own worlds and your own spells, your own monsters, you've got characters you've populated, that's your game. Yep. And it's not my place to tell you how to play it or run it or do whatever. I can make cool stuff for you to play with but it's your thing. And so I always felt like I have an opportunity because I'm not part of staff, but I'm, I'm sort of in this hybrid role. And because I'm doing a lot of Dragon Magazine and Dungeon Magazine content, I would slip in all sorts of little things and little nods to older editions of the game. Like I think it, I put in Fragorak the Answerer at one point in, in something I made, or like the Manual of the Plains book. There are all sorts of stuff that were callbacks to previous editions. And I carried that through the entire time because at the time I didn't understand, and I don't regret that, but at the time I felt like there was, there was shock and awe from the audience. Yeah. The, the audience was uh, shocked and awed because they, everything that was true about D&D was suddenly upended. Yep. We now have crystal people running around and we have entirely new races that just don't have any kind of gravitas or weight. They're just there because they fill niches. And this concept of, power sources and all sorts of other goofy things where magic items are bolted into your character and all that other stuff is making people freak out because the rules have also changed. It doesn't look yep. like D&D. It doesn't smell like D&D. So what is it? And you know, I think Essentials got close to, it could have saved that role-playing game and brought it a step closer to what I think the audience would expect. And I think if it had been even more radical, 
uh, I wrote an article on my on my website at some point in this where I was uh, railing against the encounter structure that underpinned all fourth editions adventures because uh, and it was kind of redesigned the dungeon which was the was uh, the blog post it's gone now into the ether but the point of this article was to say that dungeons aren't shaped into perfectly scripted encounters they are messy and they're big and they have zones and there are things happening and you can't predict when the ogre is going to hear the sound of you fighting from two rooms over he might come and join that fight and that's not going to fit within your xp budget and so we kind of towards the end of fourth edition were rebuilding a lot of those ideas and kind of breaking away from the structure and the approach as part of i think this late stage revolution in the game to try to try to save it because by that point i had worked i mean like i i have often said that i loved fourth edition until martial power came out and why is that uh martial power had it was the first broken mechanics that were really that were that were introduced in the game and it uh it was telling because uh we were getting ready to play we were sitting down to play and three of the players had scrapped characters they played the week before and came in with battle ragers because they knew that they were minion proof because the way it was written. And so there was, it felt slap, it felt slapdash and and sloppy, even though I worked in this book, uh, some of those elements were just not, they just weren't up to snuff. And as that game generated content, it was harder and harder to be able to play it in a manner that we played it before, where you just whip up a character, you have nothing to reference as you're playing. But this game, you need cards and you need a program and all the other things like that. Now, all that said, uh, I really did like designing for fourth. It was fun. Yeah. The mechanics made sense. Building monsters that were, that were, was a joy because you knew just the whole process of building the monsters were by having, by just assigning just something as simple as saying solo at the top told you how that thing's supposed to live and play right and you know you didn't and building encounters was just like i have a budget of xp and all i gotta do is spend that to build my models out and then now i've got this team of bad guys that's gonna be pretty balanced now right. granted no one no one in dnd history i don't think ever play test the game past 10th level and it's clear <laughs> in fifth and it's clear in fourth and it's clear in third and so on the game does get creaky and groans a bit Yep. But, uh, you know, the first 10, 20 levels of D&D, fourth, are fun. They take too long. The fights take too long, but it's fun. You feel like you're doing something. I'd be curious now, looking back on it, um, it was pretty clear from the beginning, because, I mean, Wizard of the Coast wasn't wasn't shy about the goal of fourth, right? What they wanted to accomplish with fourth, why they did what they did. Looking back on it, was that a success in your mind? No. I, it, fourth issue was a game that came out... Uh, 10 years too early. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, a little ahead of themselves. Oh yeah. Um, the, I think, I think something that was a more modest step forward that would have preserved the OGL and had cleaned up a lot of what was going on in third editions, groaning and creakiness and stripped the game down to something more manageable. I think that would have been able to coast things that would have also given fourth edition more time and development to sand off the rough edges i mean i, I just people just don't understand how, how playtesting was working with that game it's like you looked at the 
playtesters were playing in fourth edition, they're saying, man, we're killing these monsters way too fast. So what was the solution? We just give the monsters more hit points. Well, we didn't play test it enough. I mean, they might have, but what happened was that by getting more hit points to the monsters, combats went from taking 30 minutes to, or 15 right. to 20 minutes to an hour. And so to get through 13 encounters, which is what you needed to level up, that's 13 hours of gameplay, not talking about the framing story or anything else you're doing. Right. That's a huge right. investment for a 30-level game. Yeah, no question about it. No question about it. So when does the cloud of fifth start to start to swirl? When do you start seeing the signs there the way you saw with fourth? Um, we were all, it was all really clear that fifth edition was something that was, uh, was probably coming. Um, and I mean, I, I had, enough, I was still on, I was still part of, I was a contractor position. So I was still, I was involved in that story from pretty early on. Um, it was Mike Merles and I had a conversation at Winter Fantasy one year. This is leading up, maybe it was a year or two before, where Mike was talking about some of his ideas for bounded accuracy and how monsters might work and all these other types of things. And I think that you know the, the circumstances of D and D's position in the market and the hobby was fairly precarious at that time. And I'm not, I don't yeah. have any numbers to back this up, but Pathfinder had really done a good job in claiming a lot of disaffected fans and my hat's off to them right i mean you've got a they had a good game and it uh and it, and it held them and it kept a lot of people employed and it made a lot of people happy and there's and you know as i as i always say one good game company or two good game companies helps keep all the other ships afloat no question um, yeah what i didn't like was the splintering and because uh, it you know, I, I have all long said that I feel like every edition is just another break in the culture of of, of the hobby, because you're going to have advocates for previous editions that are just not going to come forward. Yep. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I it's, it was I guess it was probably 2012 ish. Um, I got the call asking me if I would be part of the fifth edition design team. Um, at that time, Rich Baker was leading it. Um, Mike Merles and Jeremy Crawford were kind of orchestrating events in the background. Uh, they brought myself and Monty Cook in at the same time. And uh, we started with a version of the game that was very much like third edition. In fact, it was very close to third edition. Interesting. Um, and then it evolved from there. There was a big, there was a moment where there was a shift and that shift was kind of this, I, I had this idea that I felt that the new edition of D&D has to mend everything. You've got to be able to make a game that appeals to every fan of D&D from whenever before. Again, people just don't understand that while we're making this game, Stranger Things wasn't even, a, wasn't even a thing yet. Yep. Uh, and actual play wasn't a thing. Yeah. Uh, there, there, yeah, live stream stuff. None of that stuff was even, this was still, we're still going and had no idea what was going to come. Yeah. Uh, and there was this kind of retro movement starting to build up though, uh, where a lot of hipsters, uh, and millennial groups were, were kind of getting into D and D at this time, but not to the degree that stranger things really kind of lit a fire. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was. It was an interesting time because I was going up to Seattle every other month 
for a while. Uh, I'd be up there for a week or two weeks. And then we would, uh, at one point, the design team shrunk. So it was just Bruce Cordell, Monty, and myself. And then Monty left the team. And then there was a big shakeup. And then it constantly changed. And then, you know, eventually we got fifth edition in the form that it is now. But it was, for me, the best education uh, I could have ever received about just just about designing role-playing games because it's not, there's more to it than just knowing the math. There's more to it than having <laughs> the vision. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people stuff that you've got to deal, you got to deal with, especially games for their big venerable properties where there is a, a balancing act between maintaining people's, the various people who are working on it, their interest. So you're not doing something that's burning down their particular patches of the countryside and, and, and just trying to knit all those disparate voices into one cohesive thing. You know, I think that I, I don't play fifth edition at all. I don't run it. I don't have anything to do with it. Uh, I did a few things with it and uh, with my company and I just felt like, I just, I just don't want to deal with it. Yeah. Um, Is that just because you got exposed to it for so long or? You, you don't eat sausage after you watch it being made. Understood. Um, and then, you know, there are, there are things in the game that are great. And there are things in the game that frustrate me. And it's mostly things that I can point to in the design and development process where I argued one way and was shouted down or whatever. Sure. And, you know, and that just is the way it is. And that's yep. okay. And I, and even my solution to the time were probably not any better than what we got. <laughs> sure, sure. You're not saying you were right. but No, I, I have no idea, yeah. right? I have no idea. I mean, some of those ideas did make their way in the Shadow of the Demon Lord, which I know is ahead still. But uh, some of them are not. And, yep. uh, you, you know, I, I look back at the time when we were thinking about character creation buckets and trying to, you know, how do we assemble characters and how do we expedite the process so it's not this grueling thing. And, you know, the time we were, we had this idea of class, race, background, and uh, a theme. Right. And the theme was something that I, I still really regret that we, we dropped uh, because it was the feet delivery system for the game. Interesting. Uh what it, classes didn't have any choice they were just tracks and so your your theme would allow you to skin your character in different ways so what i found was really appealing was like well you have a necromancer theme what does that mean that means that any character of any class and race combination can decide i want to be a necromancer theme and because a necromancer theme gives you some stuff it flavors your character in a really interesting exciting way so if I'm a fighter and I take Necromancer and the Necromancer gives me a bone servant who rides on my shoulder and does things and then I can cast some sort of spectral hand thing and, you know, a dead don't like to mess with me because I'm scary or whatever, that's pretty cool. Right. And if you also think about the wizard who has access to necromancy spells and all those things plug in for that as well, you know, it's also really cool. You know, it also yeah. is even cooler is if you play a straight cleric, which is a servant of a god, and you take the necromancy theme, then you could be a death priest. Right, right. And so those having those as objects that live outside of class preserves the class identity for what it is. 
it makes themes fully optional. So you don't have to use them if you don't want to. Uh, and then it allows you also to have multiple themes at, to reflect your character's growth. So that you might start off as a necromancer and then go on to becoming a sword master or whatever else. So that was one of those things that, that, that you know, it was a battle I lost that I, I regret because what we got was classes that then encompass themes inside of the classes that are exclusive to those classes, but that then dilute what the class does. Right, right. So there is, you couldn't, you could have a ranger who has some sort of magic in a naturey way, and you could have a druid with some sort of magic in a naturey way, and they occupy the same conceptual, conceptual space. Right. And in fact, we'll probably eventually play fairly similarly, just like yep. if you add a nature theme to the fighter thing or yep. a subclass, it's the same thing as a range. So, and, it, and again, it dilutes the strength of the class and it makes, and, that, and that's where I get frustrated, right? Because I look at those kinds of things and I say, it didn't have to be this way. Sure. <laughs> well, and, and that's got to be the challenge of designing in that environment, right? Where you, granted, you're, 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 literally creating the biggest game in the history of role-playing, right? Fifth right. edition is, no one's going to make that argument, and you're a part of that. But I would imagine the challenge is, is it's not completely yours. And, and you know, when we talk about your games, we're going to see the ability to not have those constraints and what that allows for you. But I, before we break for that, I want to talk about a couple more things. One, I'd like to talk about you designing in fifth and you talked about how how it changed how you looked at things and how it changed how you designed and developed and way you thought about it and then go let's go back to your green ronin days where you said you're just shooting off the hip you didn't know what you were doing what happened in between so what changed what did you know then and now that you you laugh at the at, at young robert creating uh, you know with you know previous games what changed? Right. Uh, some of the things, some of the big things were that, uh, you know, your first idea is not your, not always your best one. Uh, yeah. Sometimes you will follow design directions that uh, previously I would have followed to their conclusion, good or bad, and that become the thing. Uh, but in fifth edition, you, there were times where, like, there was one example where we had built this entire system to make weapon choice more meaningful. And so every weapon had a series of feet stunt things that went with it. But when you think about the, the, the size of how many weapons are in D&D, it becomes super unwieldy, and there's a lot of overlap yep. between the conceptual overlap. And so being, having the time and the luxury of time in the early days to explore different ways of going about things. I'm not sure if you were part of the D&D Next Packet when we released the skill system that was basic, expert, advanced, and master, mm -hmm. which were the skill names. And so when you're going to open a lock, a lock would have one of those four names attached to it. And so if you open a basic lock and you have basic training, you just open the lock. And if you say, or you make, I think actually you make the role. And you know what? Right. If you're up against an expert lock, you can't open it because it's beyond you. Yeah. And sometimes it's good to have things that you just can't do. Yeah. Um, and then also to, re to reward you later on when you're a master lock picker, man, you could do anything. Mm -hmm. Now, we tried that and the audience rebelled. And so we, mm -hmm. we dropped it. Do in high, Looking back, this is Monty's idea for this. And it was uh, came out of a conversation we had at Gen Con. I think it's brilliant. And I wish we had done that because I think right. it would have sped up. It would have gotten rid of the proficiency bonus, which is another big bugaboo for me. But it was yeah. awesome. Right. It would have been great for to see how that 
it would clean up so much of the game and make, and make things move very, very quickly. Um, there's also just the mathematical rigor that goes into uh, the into this game. I mean, uh, I learned I learned a lot about Excel and its power and how to use it to do all the things that I needed to do for the games I've designed going forward. Interesting. Um, and you know, as I said, there's also the the personal relationships. Uh, I, I I mean, I, I know that if I was in a situation where I was going to design, this is ridiculous and ludicrous, but let's say that Chaosium says, Schwab, we want you to help us design Call of Cthulhu 47th edition or whatever they're on right now. And that would be an honor. It would be great to work on that game, but I think I would attack that problem in a way much, much more different from how I attacked it when I was on a fifth edition team. And right. yeah, it was just messy and lots of different voices. And it was a kind of a noisy environment. And one that involved the public play test. So we were constantly being curtailed. Our design was being pushed in different directions based on what the audience was saying. Sorry about that noise. Oh, no, it's great. Now, here's what's interesting, Robert, is um, at least for me, and my perspective is somewhat unique because I um, gave up role-playing games for like 20 years, 20, 23 years. Um, when I left role-playing, there was Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, there was GURPS, there was Champions. And then when I came back a year and a half, two years ago, everything had changed. Um, and, and a lot happened sure. <laughs> between right. those between those two points. And one of the biggest things that I noticed when I came back into role-playing games was before it was, you know, hey, do you like role-playing? I like, kind of like role-playing too. Let's go play. Right, let's, right, like, right. We won't tell anybody and, you know, well, let's just go do that. Now everybody does it and it's everywhere and it's bigger than it's ever been. And fifth edition was a big part of that. And right. I've talked to a lot of people about this and there's people that have said this and I agree with them. Like there's, there's going to be, there's going to be doctorates written on what has happened in the last five, 10 years. I'd be curious from your perspective, why is it bigger now than it's ever been before? Was it a perfect storm? Was it one thing? How did we get to where we are right now? Do you think? I think um, it is probably because of a natural cycle of reviving uh, certain aspects of nostalgia. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, in the in the early '90s, I remember listening to Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, The Doors, and so there was very much this kind of resurgent hippie thing. Yeah, I did the same on, thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. And we were we were all you know hippie dippy kids, and it was great, right? And uh, you know, then you had that phase where people would kind of go back to the '80s, and the '80s were all big, exciting. Everyone was listening to Duran Duran. And, we follow that cycle. And I think that right. these things come back up again. I think that in the case of Dungeons and Dragons, I think that there is to some extent the benefit of the internet, the fact that geeks inherited the earth, right? Yep. Uh, and so the transmission of ideas is much faster. I think the fact that our generation is became came into power over what kinds of media are made, and we're the ones who grew up on D&D, and so we're going to bring we're going to tell stories where D and D is part of it. It's part right. of the the fabric of culture. And then I also I think that it is an opportunity to do something that isn't scripted. Uh, that is that you know as much as you know it, the fact that you can make up your own stories and have the vivid imagination and you have any kind of imagination at all, you can be you can transport yourself for a very low investment 
and make friendships you're gonna last for the rest of your life. Yeah. And for the cost of a player's handbook. And really yeah. you don't have to pay that much money. You don't even have to buy a player's handbook, right? I mean Yeah. So the and being part of the culture of I'm making a character and telling stories we're going on adventures has a deep appeal in a crowded marketplace of other things that are are chewing at our time. Mm-hmm. I think I don't think that the, I think any edition of D and D that launched in the teeth of that would have been a success. I am very proud of the game that we made. Um, uh, you know, Mike and Jeremy uh, they they led us through a difficult process of design. Uh, I am proud of the fact that big chunks of that game still exist that are, that I can point to and say, I made that, I made that. This is the game works this way That's because be cool. I fought for this. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and there are other parts of the games like, I can't believe I fought for this and now we're stuck with it. Uh, but <laughs> um, it is a really perfect distillation of a dozen, 20, 30 people's ideas into celebrating all the best parts of D&D. That's cool. And that is what, if 5th edition does anything at all, it validates everybody's play style before. If you want to be a dungeon crawler, the game can do it. If you want to be a high function, a high art thespian, where you right. have you know, fabulous stories and you're deeply into character, it can do that too. And it's the breaking away from using toy soldiers is a crucial step in making that happen to have broad appeal. Yep. Yep. Now, the other thing that I came into when I came back, Robert, I noticed was the huge indie scene um, and just the just the sheer amount of games being created. Um, right. And I'd be curious to know what, what your view on all of that is. Things like Powered by the Apocalypse, Monster Hearts, uh, you know, just this whole other part of of the industry. Um, what's your view on that? The more the merrier, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, I think that their role-playing games have always had a DIY aspect. Uh, and until recently, uh, you know, publishing tools now are so powerful that anybody can really do it. I mean, yeah. you don't even need to have InDesign to you make a P you can just make it out of a word document and pretty it up. Um, I think so. I think because of that, uh, people feel that the barriers to creating and getting their ideas out there, are a lot lower than they were before. Now it's there's no excuse. If you've got a cool idea you want to share with the world, it it's just your will. Yep. Uh, your ability to complete a sentence and to construct a sentence in a paragraph and put the thing together and get it out the door. Um, I also know that when D&D is doing really well, the hobby does really well. Uh, exactly. Uh, yep. And D&D is doing gangbusters right now, which is allowing everybody else to do pretty well uh, and it, that's just going to be probably the way it's always going to be. Um, as far as like the different systems, like uh, Power by the Apocalypse, I think they're all interesting takes on the same kind of enterprise we're we're, we're all involved in. Um, yep. And you know, some to like we we've been, we did a, a variety of role playing games before the pandemic, and once we're back together, I hope to continue exploring what the entire field has to offer. I'm mostly really excited in the saner aspects of the OSR crowd 
uh, and I, I want to be clear, the saner aspects of, of that. I love that you have to verbalize that. And you're 100% right because, yeah. yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I mean, there, there's some of it makes me tired. I mean, I don't need to see. I already have the Red Box books. I don't, yeah. And I already have all my first edition stuff. I don't need to get that again. And you can just buy it off for drive through and print on demand. It's just the same thing. So yeah. somebody just kind of doing that again is not very interesting, but. Yeah, then there are little pro- there there are all sorts of little things that are out there that are just really brilliant and exciting and evocative, where you could put together a D twelve table of just random gobbledygook and it just it lights my brain on fire. Um, you know, I think it's 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 interesting. Like Mork uh, Borg uh, is an interesting game because I know it's it's the every the internet's darling right now. Uh, especially in, I find it doubly interesting because it's so edgy and so unpleasant uh, in every aspect. Uh, but it just drips flavor. Yeah. You, it, 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 you, you can, you, you get the bad taste in your mouth just playing it. Yeah. And um, yeah. So I'm excited to see what the, what the next generation of game designers are, are going to do. I feel weird even saying that because I feel like I'm still part of them. Yeah, uh, because, you know, you, you, you look back and it's like, well, no, I'm on just the young end of the Monty Cook era, I guess. Right. And Chris yeah. Premis and, you know, the the Harold Johnson's and the Bill Slavisek's and um, the Jim Ward's and Gary Gygax and everybody else. That, I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm missing up a bit, but there is a whole generation of guys who are around in the 67, the 70s and early 80s. And we're standing on their shoulders, right? I mean, we, we wouldn't be where we where we are now, with without their contributions. So yep. it is a, it's an interesting business. So yeah, one of the things that, um, you know, I came, when I came back, uh, Robert, I immediately went to GURPS because that's what I left, right? Um, wow. All right. And, and, and then I went and I said, oh, well, there's Savage Worlds now. So then I started exploring Savage Worlds, and. You know, my mindset was when I was leaving the industry um, as a consumer, it was we're going to try to create a game that lets you play whatever you want. And that was kind of kind of the big thing, the champions, the the GURPS and stuff. When I came back, I was amazed and my reaction was not a good one at first at how specific games had gotten. Like, if you want to play this type of game, you play this system. And if you want to play this type of game, you play this system. And my first reaction to that was, was you know, the old man in me was like, oh, no, that's not how you do it. Right, sure. Until I played them. Then I realized right. that, holy cow, this is amazing, right? It's amazing to have something that's mechanically built to tell a specific type of story. Um, what has that been like for you to see that come about? Because that was a change um, that happened yeah. while I was gone. And when did, like, what, what's your reaction to something like that? Because as we get into yours here after the break, I mean, yours is built to tell a very specific type of story sure. as well. Um, yeah, it was it was a very strange experience because I was of a similar mindset where, you know, Rollmaster as an engine did Space Master and the core engine didn't change that much. And yeah. GURPS could do anything. Yep. And D20 system could, in theory, do anything. Yep. Uh, and I think all that stuff's true. And I'm going to say something that might be controversial, but I don't really care. I think it could do it. Something could do everything, just doesn't do anything very well. Yeah. And uh, I think that the realization that I mean, it also I mean, it started with the the indie press guys, right? Like some of those early games, like Dogs in the Vineyard, 
and some of the other ones that were running around at that time were really powerful because it was like, are you telling me that I'm just supposed to play some Mormon dude going door to door looking for witches or whatever, whatever the hell this thing's about? And that's a game. What are you talking about? That's a game. Uh, and then, but then as I've gotten, as I've, as I've carried along in the ocean, um, I've come to realize that, well, you know, I think it's a terrible, I mean, yes, Call of Cthulhu's, the burp system did go and power RuneQuest. Yes, right. it did do that. But the game system for Call of Cthulhu is, in my opinion, at its best when it is when you're using Call of Cthulhu with it. Correct. I agree. Uh, yep. And I think that D and D is at its worst when it's trying to do things that are not D and D. Yeah. When it just D and D since it's right there on the cover, should be a dungeon. There should be a dragon at the bottom of it, and you should be stomping around killing things and getting their treasure. And that may right. not be high art for a lot of people, but it's fun. And gosh darn it, that's what it's designed to do. Yeah. Stop trying to make it do something it's not designed to do. If you want to play, let's why Cyberpunk, uh, the current version is a great game. It knows exactly what it's it's what it's what it's out to do, and it does it really really well. Yep. And that's a game that's also long in the tooth, which is also shocking to even say, but it is long in the tooth. <laughs> it um, is. So yeah, I, I'm. I think that we, if you're looking at it, I mean, this is to overly simplify this. If I'm looking at a game to ruin relationships and talk about and extol the virtues of capitalism. What game am I going to play? Well, I'm going to play uh, a choir. But uh, if I don't have a choir, I'm probably going to play Monopoly. And Monopoly right. does its best when it's doing Monopoly. Yeah. So you go to play that game and get that experience out of it. Role-playing games are just like any other kind of game in yep. the sense that you can, you know, where are you going to put your time and effort? Do you want to have a robust computer operating system, mechanic skill system for a game that is primarily designed to kill monsters in dungeons? No. But if you're going to have a game where going into the internet and in full immersion in the internet and uh, and 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 doing those kind of things like Shadowrun or or Cyberpunk, then for sure you're going to have a lot of your design space be taken up with those subsystems. And yeah. so having getting us away as designers from trying to be everything to all people uh, allows us to craft games that are more on target and and probably and arguably deliver a better play experience for everyone involved. Yeah, it's it's definitely very interesting. Well, guys, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from the break, we're going to do what I've been looking forward to through this whole conversation is talking about Shadow of the Demon Lord, Punk Apocalypse, and then uh, we've got something new coming as well. So we'll take a quick break. Howdy friends, Craig here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com. That's with one M. Or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code 
third floor friend, all one word, T H I R D F L O O R F R I E N D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. There are so many online retailers. It can be hard to find one that is trustworthy, has great prices, along with some reliable customer service. On the third floor, we love ordering our gaming goodies from Gadzooks Gaming. Their selection of terrain, miniatures, dice, custom decor, and conversion bits are curated for gamers by gamers. You'll find they have what you need and what you didn't know you needed to take your gaming fun to the next level. If you mention Third Floor Wars in the cart notes of your order, you'll also get a free gift. And you'll help support the podcast. Check out gadzooksgaming.com and mention Third Floor Wars on checkout to get that free gift. So, uh, you know, I mentioned, you know, before the break and listeners already know the story, they've heard it more than a few times about how I came back into uh, uh, the, you know, back into the industry. And it's it's kind of funny how I found Robert because I, I found Robert backwards. So I found Shadow of the Demon Lord and I started reading about that. And I'm like, wow, that looks really, really interesting. I want to talk to the person who made it. So I find out that, you know, Robert made it. And then I realized that Robert's made everything <laughs> over the last 20 years, um, not realizing, you know, what Robert has done. So I was super excited, obviously, to have you on the show, Robert. But um, I want to talk about Shadow of the Demon Lord, but I want to go back to the day before it existed. So at some point, Robert, you had it in your head. I think I want to do like I, I want to create something of my own that's 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 unique. Where's the seed? I guess is what I'm asking. Where's the seed of shadow? Towards the end of uh, my time working on fifth edition D and D, there was kind of a very real sense that we were all writing our own pink slips. That D and D was going to be a game in a box, evergreen, and it was never going to see new content, new anything. And that was the end all, what we were doing. Yep. And then, of course, you know, reality intrudes and defeats all expectations and <laughs> D&D explodes and it's everywhere. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of products out there for it and so on. But at the time, right. uh, I, you know, so I knew that my time with Wizards was coming to an end. So I had a choice. I could either uh, go back into the freelance pits working for five cents a word or I could uh, strike out on my own. And it was a really tough call. Uh, I bet. Because you work in a business for, at that time, I guess, 15 years or so. Uh, and I had worked on some of the biggest games in the business. It was terrifying to think about what would come next. Um, yeah. So uh, the seeds for Demon Lord, you know, there were, as I talked about before on the, during like the fifth edition design, there are things that we didn't pursue, different uh, lines of design that uh, I, you know, that I would have preferred or and were good or bad. And so Demon Lord was a way for me to exercise my demons uh, from uh, the, the process of birthing fifth. Um, I had a very clear idea about what I wanted. Um, I'd long felt that role-playing games can sometimes get in the way of people having fun. Uh, number one, 
hey, we're going to make a character for this game tonight. I need you to read through this entire stack of books. Right. Uh, number two, hey, we're going to make a character tonight, and I need you to spend three hours doing this super math crunchy thing. And then also my other one is, hey, we're going to play this game tonight, but this is just the first of 10 years of play for us to realize a full experience. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was create, and fantasy is my, is my thing. Um, dark fantasy is my favorite thing. Uh, dark fantasy dripping with satanic influences is my most favorite thing of all. So, Are you listening, uh, Mom? Yeah. Take that, Mom. <laughs> um, so uh, Demon Lord, was a, I, I could do whatever I wanted. And so I was going to make a, a dark fantasy RPG that's full of in-jokes and just lowbrow humor, like table defecation and the whole of glory spell and all those other things that make me giggle and sure. make me have a good time. But I also had some other uh, objectives. One, I wanted to say, we're going to confine the play experience to this period of time. I knew from research uh, that we had in early D&D discussions that gaming groups tend to fall apart after two or three months. That yep. gameplay and then your campaign ends because something interferes. So rather than try to say that I'm going to do a 30 level game where it's going to take you two or three sessions to get through every level, we should say that every time you play, you complete an adventure and then you get something new. And so you level up and then you can do this 11 times because that's about three months and yeah. that's enough. I also wanted a game that said characters are super simple to start with that the time it takes you to make a character in this game should be picking one thing and writing it down and you're playing right. nothing in front of you. Nothing, no, no major decisions. All decisions about how your character builds and develops are all things you do over time. Once you're invested. in play. Yeah. Right. So, uh, We've got so I, I had the uh, pared down playtime. I had adventures. We're going to be mapped down to three to five page scenarios that would just kind of highlight the most important parts of the character's story over however long you want your campaign to go. You might say my campaign's going to last thirty years, but each adventure takes place they're all five years apart because they're doing other things, right? They're going other yeah. minor adventures that are happening, but these are the moments that we're going to talk about. Because cool. these are the things that make no sense. Um, and then use a use an engine that is streamlined and is somewhat familiar. I mean, yeah, I could have done anything with dice. You could do anything with dice. You know, yep. what we're gonna do is we're gonna use a D twelve and a D four system with a with a rotating modifier plus one to plus and a Jenga five, tower. <laughs> and, and, and a Jenga tower. And then we're also gonna use cards, and then we're also going to only be able to play on the nights when the moon is new. Uh, I could do anything I wanted to, but sure. when you ask people, what's the most, like when you're playing a role-playing game, what's the number one thing you need to play a role-playing game? You ask anybody, well, I need a D20, right? Or something yeah. like that. They don't necessarily know what difference between a D8 and a D10. They conceptually do, but they probably, but a, a, a novice probably couldn't tell by looking at them at a glance. So uh, I just, got rid of all the extra dice and just went with a D20 and a D and a couple of D6s and kept it simple. You want to roll high and you want your target number to be a static thing. So it's always 10 or the thing you're using to resist. Uh, and then you get out, get rid of all the other things that crowd out, that crowd out the, the fun. So uh, initiative is a thing that I hate rather than having to stop the narrative to have a sorting order be set up. We just let you go directly from the story mode to tactical mode by just saying, 
you guys go first. And that's fine because you can yep. build the monsters so that they can absorb a little bit more because the players are always going first. Right. Um, and then, you know, it just, there are a lot, I did a lot of uh, like uh, taking spells and then dumping them into bigger baskets called traditions. So you can just choose a thematic basket. Like I want to be big in enchantment or I want to be big on curses or I want really gross spells. And so let you kind of pick from this giant menu of things without making it too overwhelming. And then those things, the individual discrete objects that live inside those big buckets uh, have their own uses. So you don't have to worry about now do I use my use for this instead of that? No, you just have all the uses are there for each one. So, I mean, it was all about just kind of un-effing what I, what I was calling un-effing role-playing games. Because I wanted to make it sure. fast and fun. I wanted to give it enough granularity so that uh, hardcore RPG nerds like myself will have enough to do. But I also want to be able to play this with my bar friends who don't give a damn about role-playing games and just want to hang out. I also want to create a game that I can run when I'm drunk. Because, you know, <laughs> odds are, if I'm going to be hanging out and doing nothing, I'm probably going to get tight. And sure. being able to tell a crazy story and not have to worry about, oh, my gosh, this character has a feet with a mountain thing. Was it plus two if he's the least side? Or did, 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 I don't want to mess with any of that. Yep. So, uh, and that's pretty much was what I was, those were all the kind of things that were banging around in my head while I developed in this game. Now, this game went through 30 versions Wow. And in a span of like 18 months. Uh, and it was all and I, during while I was doing all this, I was taking on a few freelance projects. I did stuff for uh, Monty, uh, for Numenera and The Strange. And I did some a couple things for Pathfinder. But, you know, largely and I also did the uh, Cypher system, uh, Shotguns and Sorcery games uh, for um, Outlander Entertainment, which has now moved over to Matt Forbix company. Point is, is that this was all I was basically doing. And it was rapid playtesting, monster and number crunching, and taking it on the road and going to game stores and burning through my Marriott points that I'd gotten from flying out to Seattle every other month, and you know just tidying my belt and doing the work and getting on the, getting out there and starting all over again and building an audience for it. And the Kickstarter did well and it paid off. Um, you know, it's Demon Lord was an incredible process because it told me that I could do things that I didn't think I was capable of doing before, such as managing the artists and buying print, but, you know, uh, and, and getting it into stores and doing all the other things that come along with being a company owner. Right. All the things that now take away the time from my job as a designer, but yep. I, at least I, I knew I could do it and I'm still doing it. Um, yep. so yeah, it was, it was very cathartic. Uh, I, we took it to, um, I guess it was close to right before the Kickstarter launch. We, for the last big, uh, demos of the game, we took it to winter fantasy. And I remember we had three or four tables running every slot and it was just, people were just gaga over this. And they were in a really That's gotta be a great feeling. Robert. And it was a really great feeling. Yeah. Because it was just like, you know, these are fun ideas, right? And this game is, it's irreverent, it's fast-paced, uh, it feels fun to play, characters are, you don't feel like you're, you made a bad choice, um, yep. and it, yeah, and it plays just, just about as fast, no matter when you're, what level and what band of, of complexity you're playing. So I'd be curious, Robert, um, so it went through several iterations, obviously, right, and you did extensive play testing. Um, if we were to take the hardback book right now, 
and go back in time to you sitting in your office and going, I think this is what I want to do. Here's some basic ideas. What what died and what survived? So what made it through all of those iterations and it made it into the final book and what died along the way? Uh, one thing in particular, one thing in particular. Um, originally, uh, one of the big thing when it doesn't sound that big now, I guess, but at the time, it was a it was a big move because one of the things that I was you know we were all wrestling with in D and D was uh, bonus hunting, um, and I think a big activity that a lot of D and D fans get involved in in different editions is trying to track down all the bonuses I can find to apply them to mitigate the fickleness of the D twenty right. Yep. And so when we were designing uh, fifth. Uh, Prior to the uh, the appearance of advantage and disadvantage die, uh, we were exploring the ideas of the bonus die, the bonus die and a penalty die, and these would be based on these would be variable die sizes based on your your class, so that the monk would have a bonus die of a d8 and a wizard would have a bonus die of a d4, and it would apply in your attack rolls or your saving throws, whatever, right? Um, and it would scoop up all those extra things that are kind of living around, and it would also work with your ability scores to keep them meaningful. Um, so I originally had for Demon Lord, a polyhedral dice, you had a full set. And mm -hmm. the day before I showed it off, we made the big, big announcement. Uh, it was at a local show in Nashville where I had a countdown timer on a website and all the other stuff that was going for it. The day before I had my volunteer game masters there to run said, we're not using any polyhedral dice, just D6s. And it worked and it worked, it worked, but it was, it was one of those last minute. No, no, this is it. This is, it was like the night before I was like, Oh no, I figured it out. This is exactly how right. it's supposed to work. And we, we, I, we, we, I pull the trigger and it has been the way it is. And it's been perfect. Yeah. It's been perfect uh, for the game. So was, was the death of all those dice brewing for a period of time and you finally yeah. pulled the trigger or did you just wake up one morning and say, screw it, I'm dumping it. Like what, how does that happen? I just kept looking at, um, we were, you know, during play tests, as, as I said, I had three play test groups running in my house. And one of the play test groups was my, um, they were casual players. And, you know, they would say, well, which die do I roll with this again? It was like the D10 or the D8 or whatever. I can't remember which one those are. And as we're doing that, I'm just, and that's just kind of, it would sit like it would yeah. just sit in the back of my head and just, just well, kind yeah. of, it would just, we had worry it, right. It was like, how can I get this so that it's so it's, it takes up less real estate and gameplay. I don't want people's eyes on each other at the table, not right. on their character sheets looking for what to do or for yeah. reminders. So, uh, yeah, that was it. It was just that, no, I don't need those at all because the D6 is nothing spread. It does. And because they're not, Boons and Banes, uh, which the name Boone and Bane comes from my friend Chris Tulak, who worked for Wizards of the Coast, uh, the change from asset and complication uh, boons and banes aren't cumulative. You just take, you add the highest or you subtract the highest. And so you always have a range of one to six. So you get diminishing returns. If you have, you can get 50 boons and it doesn't make a difference. Right. And it right. works beautifully. So what survived then? If you go back and you look at the original, the original skeleton of the game, 18 iterations later, something survived the entire journey. What do you think is the biggest thing that survived? Uh, I kept attribute scores and modifiers, and I made a break from uh, the from other D twenty based games in that uh, I just your modifier is your score minus ten. 
that was in place from the very start uh-huh. or close to the very start. Um, and part of that is that it lets you use target number 10 for anything that's not opposed. And that is super sexy because you don't have to worry about uh, difficult DC charts or any of that stuff at all. Yep. You just say you either succeed or you fail, or you might make it, and you've got a roughly 50-50 shot. Plus, uh-huh. you, plus or minus your, your bonuses. So that was that was there from the beginning. Um, yeah, uh, the path system did make it, uh, but it changed its final form to – it changed from its earlier incarnations because I had adopted a more theme approach where you had these packets like I was talking about for fifth, uh, and I moved them into actual – I got rid of the idea of overarching things and made all characters – just combinations of different paths. Very, very cool. So you launch the Kickstarter. It's a huge success. People are gobbling the game up. Um, it's one thing to hear and read reviews on Warhammer and read reviews on 5th edition, right? Because you were a part of that, but it wasn't yours. This was right. yours. So what was it like to, to hear that land and to hear it out in the wild people were playing it they were making videos about it they were writing blog articles about it some good some bad um like like what was it like digesting that as the as the as the sole creator um you know i i always had uh i I, to be honest i had a fairly i I had pretty thin skin about uh reviews for a long time and uh i eventually developed a callus uh and I am naturally a cynical and skeptical person. So I had expected the game to fail and that, uh, <laughs> and that I would be picking up the pieces of my broken dreams and discarding them and uh, going back to working in an alley uh, performing sexual favors for quarters. Again. Again. Uh, so uh, the, it was a surprise. Um, I don't read reviews at all for my own sanity. Um, yeah. and, I, and it's, but it, what is more gratifying is to watch sales numbers. If, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, if I can keep my lights on or keep doing what I'm doing, keep afford to, to, to pay for artists and pay for my bar tabs and, you know, contribute to my household and keep my fat fed, my cats fed, then, uh, yeah, I'm doing all right. And sure. that's, and demon Lord's done pretty well. Um, I think we're getting close to, you know, it's if I was any other company and I was looking at doing second edition stuff, this would probably be the time where I'd be thinking about it. Right. But um, I said from the beginning that Demon Lord was going to be a one edition game only, um, which is important to me because um, I think that when you do an overhaul on your game engine, you do a disservice to your audience. Interesting. Um, because you made a game and the game's going to, it's, and that, and there are people who like the way the game plays. Yeah. And no addition change ever comes at the perfect time for the audience. And if you decide that, you know, our next edition doesn't have the assassin class in it. And Johnny in Minnesota has a 12th level of Grandmaster Assassin. He's be pretty pissed off when he tries to convert yep. that character, and as many that will be a a clear choice. I mean, that was a big thing with the monk. That's, that's why it took me so long to change from first edition to second. Um, I just don't give me a game that has fewer options in it. 
yeah, uh, and invalidate my play choices, my play style. So, um, which is I think part of going back to what we were saying about fourth edition earlier. I think that fourth edition, if it had been a separate game, because you look oh, at Gamma World, Gamma World yep. when that came out for using the fourth edition engine, uh, it was a great game. People loved it. They loved it, and they people who hated fourth edition loved Gamma World. Yep. Uh, so that tells me that it's calling it what it was called, but the game itself is fine. Interesting. Um, so anyway, yeah, it, it's, I don't want to, I don't want to tell my customers, Hey, you've been with me all this time. You've invested a grand into my game and now I'm going to make you do it all over again. Right. Right. I want to tell you, I, mean, I want to, now if you want to come along with me for my next game, and do it all over again. I'll be very grateful. Sure. But I've given you something and I'm not going to yep. change it. It's, it's the way it is. It's it's very interesting way to think about it, Robert. Very interesting way to think about it. Was there anything that surprised you when, um, when demon Lord got out there? Was there something that uh, people did with the game or you saw happening with the game or things that um, was said about the game that you, that, that pleased you, but were unexpected? Yeah, there were a lot of. I mean, there are a lot of comparisons to like the, to to fifth, and people are trying to figure out ways to incorporate Demon Lord elements into the fifth edition game. And I think it's interesting. Um, I know that there are elements in Demon Lord that are certainly present in D anD. I mean, there is a cleric path, uh, but that's because I was going for familiar archetypes. Sure, uh, and these are familiar fantasy archetypes that resonate across a variety of different fantasy games. Yeah. Um, so it was important to me. Yeah. And so making sure that I provided valid choices for people who are coming at a fantasy, even a dark fantasy game that matched their expectations was crucial for the success of this particular product. Um, I was also surprised at how much people just borrow bits and pieces like boons and banes have shown up everywhere or not everywhere, yeah. but they've shown up a lot of places. Um, and I've, I've seen people do interesting things with how I handle initiative. Uh, even in the upcoming, uh, sh the new shadow game, uh, it makes a tweak on the initiative system that preserves the speed, but does tweak it a bit. So where does punk apocalypse come from? Well, um, it was a an, an, it was an interesting idea. Uh, it was a, there, I have a, my Spanish translator approached me several years ago and said, "Hey, you got to check out this miniatures game. It is spot on. You and your tone and your filthy potty mouth, and it's exactly <laughs> the kind of thing I'd imagine you to do." So we talked uh, with bad with the, uh, the guys that were at Bad Roll, and they were on board with the tabletop RPG. Um, it was an opportunity for me to experiment with adapting a miniatures game to the Demon Lord engine. Uh, some of the changes were fairly radical departures from the Demon Lord engine. We have eight attributes instead of four. I regret some of that, some of those choices. Um, but I mean, I, the game plays fine and it plays, it's fun and it's, loaded with F-bombs and it's disgusting and brutal and <laughs> weird uh, as it should be. I mean, it is a, yeah. it's a Wahoo post-apocalyptic game uh, that has carried that it, it, it just kind of like, it really is a, irre it is irre irreverent. Um, but it was, it's kind of a self-contained thing. It's a, 
it's a product that I wanted to make. It came out. We we were able to fund it with the Kickstarter, and we've got a two more, couple more products coming out for it, and we'll see how it does. Um, yeah, I think one of the things that that my, may have heard it was that we did a post apocalyptic companion book for Demon Lord called Godless. And okay. So there are some conceptual overlaps between these two products. So I want to talk about Shadow of the Weird Wizard, uh, something that's uh, coming out soon at the time of, that we're recording this. Um, where does this thing come from? Well, this was a really strange idea I had early on. Um, I dropped Demon Lord, and when it came out, it was dark, gruesome, blood and guts, Evil Dead style fantasy army oh, of darkness way to put it. Yeah. kind of game. Yeah. Um, and I think everyone in their heart of hearts should have room for that kind of highbrow humor and hilarity <laughs> that ensues from such a dark and gloomy setting. Yeah. Um, but I realized that not everybody has the same macabre sense of humor that I have and that Demon Lord's appeal was going to always be limited uh, right. by the subject matter. Yep. Um the original plan was just to strip out all the naughty stuff and present a traditional high fantasy game. The trouble I discovered was that if you strip out all the dark edgy elements and you're left with a game that's a game engine that's still built for a horror fantasy game but has an expectation for high fantasy, those two things don't match. Right. Which then led to me rethinking the underlying mathematical structure on which the game rides or runs. So um, that's why it's taken me longer to get this thing out. The premise is um, it is gloomier than Forgotten Realms. I would argue that it's the same level of gloom that Greyhawk has if you're putting it on the D&D spectrum. Right. Probably uh, after the Ashes box set. Yep. Uh, so the premise is that there's a, uh, that the old kingdom has fallen into civil war uh, and people are fleeing. Uh, there's They can go one direction, which takes them to the devastation, which is the ruined, blasted wasteland that was left from the empire that fell before the old kingdom. Or they can go into the lands of the Weird Wizard, which are called the New Lands. Now, the Weird Wizard, no one goes here. Not very many people go here because the Weird Wizard originally called the Mad Wizard, but we changed it to be, uh, you know, be kind and gentle to people who are Mad Wizards. Um, The Weird Wizard has controlled these new lands for a long time and uh, has allowed no one to kind of settle there, but he disappeared. And so there's a Forbidden City, which is where his base of operations, the clockwork creatures that were his his creations uh, that have been keeping it going. Uh, So you play uh, among the first generation of refugees that are coming in to this territory that is largely unexplored. There are some indigenous folks, there are skin changers, and there are shades who have escaped the underworld and regained their corporeal form. Um, This game lets you play big hulking ogres that uh, have horns and fur all over their bodies. Uh, You can play dragon, dragonettes, which are little dragon folks. Uh, You could play um, hobgoblins that hide in your house and repair your shoes and do stuff like that. So it's got the same kind of magicalness that kind of permeates all of uh, Demon Lord, but it presents it in a way of where exploration and staking out territory and 
trying to salvage what was left of the world before in a wild and unpredictable landscape. Uh, it is, if you know how to play Demon Lord, you know how to play Weird Wizard. Nice. Uh, there are some some changes. Uh, key changes are we. I have moved the idea of traditions in order to reduce the number of choices players have to make and folded them into paths. So that if you want to be a fire wizard type or fire spellcaster, you just choose a path and that gives you the access to the spells. Uh, if you want to be more of a general type wizard, Gandalfy, or even a more traditional D&D style wizard where you're firing fireballs, lightning bolts, uh, then you just choose wizard. Um, right. It has novice paths, uh, the Godsworn, where you are, um, you're just a normal dude or dudette running around the, the place. All of a sudden, this big divine power says, nope, you are, you're working for me now, son. And so you can then channel all this stuff into you as a god turns you into a micro avatar. And as you wow. progress along that path, you get cooler ways of manifesting the divine entity that has chosen you. And then we have the magician and the fighter and the scoundrel are your novice paths. And then it branches out to 16 expert paths and 120 <laughs> master paths. Oh, wow. In the, in the current draft. Right. We'll right. What's, what's interesting to me hearing this, Robert, and, and, and it starts when I hear you talk about Demon Lord and, and kind of stepping through it. I'm hearing kind of two voices a little bit. I'm hearing one voice of Robert that, that's very thematic in the world and the feel and the grit. But I also hear Robert, the number cruncher and the mechanic. And, and, and I'd be curious to know how often those two fight each other and who wins. So how often is it thematic Robert that dictates the mechanics and how often is the mechanics that change the theme and the feel? It is a struggle. Uh, yeah. it, there, there, I have, there are competing forces that, uh, and I have to, because one of the things that makes game design such an interesting profession, especially for tabletop RPGs, I'm specifically talking about that. I don't know anything about board game, card game, sure. video game design at all. But when you're doing RPGs, there's so much literature in quotes and narrative writing about that covers world building and characterization and uh, plot structure and all that stuff. And all the stuff that excites you and gets you turned on about a good novel or a good comic book or a good movie, they're all there. But then you have to also have kind of some idea what the hell's going on on the numbers yeah. side. Yeah, And I can go into either mode fairly well. It takes me a little bit to shift gears. Uh, if I'm in hardcore, no, I've, I've, I'm doing this extremely difficult spreadsheet that tracks, uh, that takes the expected damage outputs for characters based on their paths. And then <laughs> to show why uh, novice level magicians should be throwing four dice six balls of fire out of the gate because they only get to do it once. And then you, anyway, you're balancing against the sword users and you're then wrestling with damage dice and then doing <laughs> different ways as far as how all these things kind of hang together. And then also making sure monsters live long enough and then saying stuff like, no, I just really want to talk about this NPC who lives in a giant shoe and the shoe then eventually picks up and goes marching off on its own and it kind of, and goes from place to place or I want to have this spider creature whose webs that uh, that it spins are actually the sorrows that are all coming from the people in this town nearby that it's been tormenting. And so whenever somebody is broken down with grief, it gets the silk it needs to spin out these vast webs 
to ensnare the dragon things that are flying around nearby on which it feeds. And so it has this, do I want to do stuff like that? But I sure. really, really like to do stuff like, okay, I got, I've got at least five more paths. What if I yeah. do this thing with this particular number trick or this die trick that seems like a lot of fun and we'll do this thing. And then how do I marry that to uh, some cool narrative element that will then make sense. Right. Mm-hmm. And then get frustrated when I have to think about, do I really have to think about how much water uh, spills over the edges when I want to raise a water level of a pond? Do I really yeah. need to worry about how many feet that spreads out? No, I really don't. But let me just go ahead and do the math anyway. No, it's terrible. So in the process of design, I keep hearing, uh, you know, it's an old term, you know, kill your darlings. Um, and I'd be curious, what's what's easier for you, Robert? To kill a concept and a theme for the sake of the game or to kill a mechanic for the sake of the game? Uh, I probably would be easier for me to. Uh, they're both hard. Yeah. But then they're not. But then they're but then they're both. But it depends on like the mechanic. Right. Um, I think back to when we were when I was working on Demon Lord. And what's funny about the initiative thing, this has been a, a thorn in my side for almost as long as I've been designing games. Um, and it was, and I think it started with the, not as long as I've been designing games, but going back to Song of Ice and Fire, I remember one review, it's back when I was reading reviews still, was like, it's got a really pedestrian initiative system, was a complaint. And it was like, what the hell, man? Where did this come from? <laughs> initiative is just this thing we all have to do because everybody's <laughs> right. supposed to get a turn. What do you want from me? I mean, it's just roll a die. Who gets the highest yeah. number goes? It doesn't have to be high. And I was like, then I was like, why is this a thing, right? And then I started yeah. thinking about it. I was like, what is initiative really doing? And then why do we do this process? Why are we all invested in rolling? And like, I keep thinking about it. It's like I got this really well sculpted story where you and I are both, you know, playing characters and the dungeon master in the background. He's telling us we're going to this cave and there's this dragon ahead. And there's fire leaking from the ceiling and there's dragon dung and there's. This partly digested dwarf who's like, go back, go back to the dragon this way and doing all this crazy stuff. And then all of a sudden we meet some dragonette type creatures that come boiling out in a sauce of their own juices and fluids and solids and it's all going everywhere. And the dungeon master says, all right, everybody, uh, I need you guys to uh, give me initiative rolls, please. Um, yep, I think you got a 13. Okay, you're going to go here and you got a nine. All right, you go here and I'm going to roll individually because I'm a, that big of a pedant that I'm going to roll individually for these these creatures. I'm going to order yep. this all out and then we're like, come back to it. It's like, now what's going on? Right, right. It shouldn't be that way. We should be able to say, what do you do? Yeah. Because we do that. That's the number one question you ask your players in the game. What do you do? Do you transition from what do you do to go straight into the action? Nothing should interrupt that because yep. once you take, once you have this mechanical hoop that gets in the way. And so I thank that reviewer who said, you've got a really pedestrian initiative system. Thank you. Because that changed everything for Isn't me as something? far as why demon Lord had that way. So when I introduced the fast, slow concept initiative thing for demon Lord, my players, my hardcore uh, uh, RPG nerds were like, no way. This is completely busted, broken garbage. And yep. I was like, just just give it a shot. And originally we had three phases. We had like fast turn, monster phase, and slow turn, and blah, blah, blah. It took, it took uh, one combat, one tweak, and it was the way it's been ever since. Isn't that great. fun? Yeah. Yeah. 
And I would imagine, too, to a certain degree, Robert, especially because you're you know, you have different play groups. Um, I would imagine that initial rebuke reaction can sometimes be a sign of I'm on to something. Right. When, when their initial reaction is like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, my God, this is so different. And then they you know, then you see them try it and then you can see it seep into their brain. That's got to yeah. be a hell of a feeling. Yeah, and we have kind of been wrestling with that with uh, the current draft for uh, Weird Wizard has um, one of the problems that you've got if your characters are getting multiple. This is a this is a deeply in the weeds problem, but um, you get these when you're if you want to give a character uh, multiple attacks, and you go from not having multiple attacks, where you're making one attack per round, and then you go to a point where you're making multiple attacks around, you double the amount of damage output that character is getting. Right. So you get these weird spikes in your number line that goes uh, as far as your your uh, damage output curve. You get these really big jumps, and it's just ugly. It doesn't yep. feel natural. It just and it be, it's all because we want the players to have the ability to attack twice, or three times, or four times, or five times. And you know how third edition solved it. It just gave you a big weighty penalty on the back end of your attack. So your first attack would be normal. Second attack minus five. Third attack minus ten, minus fifteen, and so on. That's all great, but no one's going to be bothering to roll on that minus 15 because you're going to miss unless you roll an yep. actual 20. Uh, so, yeah, that's just not 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 good. Uh, so what I've been doing was like, well, you know, how do I, how do I reconcile this? And I was like, oh, I could do some juggling the math and then just make spells get bigger. And you see all these kind of weird things you've got to do with a game where you've got uneven progressions. And I hate it. I was like, no, damage dice just become a pool. And so you assign damage dice to your attacks. So if you've got two damage dice and you've got a sword in one hand and a dagger in the other, you can attack with both of them, but each one does one die damage. <laughs> right. Or if you've got a great sword, you make one swing, it does two dice of damage. And then the great sword is differentiated from these by giving modest modifiers to the weapons. So the great sword, you might never be able to make more than one attack with it because it's big and heavy. But it yep. does a lot of extra damage when you hit. Whereas with a rapier or a rapier, rather, you're going to be attacking multiple times. And so it has no extra bonus damage, but it lets you divide up your dice in multiple attacks, which gives you more chances of hitting than you would ordinarily. And when you're just looking at the, the math by itself, it plays out the same. Even though the play <laughs> experience for the player with a rapier is like, I'm hitting every other time. And the great right. sword yeah, I missed, I missed, but then I really hit. And you feel awesome <laughs> when you do. Yeah, and it feels like having a rapier or an epee or a uh, yeah. or a great two-handed sword. That's very, very cool. Um, Robert, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to sit with us. Um, this was this was uh, very, very interesting, and uh, it was neat to hear kind of your journey uh, through all of it and to, to hear it culminate um, with, a, with a game as, as, as exciting as uh, uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord and Punk Apocalypse are. Can't wait for uh, Weird Wizard. Um, so for those listeners, Robert, where is the best place if they want more robert uh be my new best friend on facebook you can find me as robert j schwalb i'm sometimes on twitter either as uh, schwalb underscore ent or under uh at rj schwalb uh you can also find my website at uh schwalbentertainment.com uh you can buy all my cool products at drive through rpg they're my good friends and uh, partners through this long crazy journey we call the game industry <laughs> uh, if you want my stuff in stores uh, go after your re your favorite uh, local game store and beg them to carry shadow the demon lord studio 2 handles all my distribution there you find our stuff from their site as well 
Fantastic. And guys, we'll have links for all of that uh, right under the episode here in the show notes. Um, Robert, we're going to have to come up with an excuse for you to uh, come back. So maybe I might poke you when Weird Wizard is uh, out in the wild. Sounds perfect. I had a great time. I did too, sir. Take care. And for those of you that stayed around to the end, thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Twitch so you don't miss the avalanche of content we create. Links are in the show notes. Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest in gaming apparel and gear. There you'll also find the latest information for the U.S. Faux Tour. Find out where you rank in your conference or even in the entire United States. Get those models built, painted, and ready so we can see you at the next U.S. Faux Tour Masters event. Please take a moment to write a review of this pod on your favorite platform. Rating and reviewing helps us find more listeners almost as cool as you are. Be sure to share this feed with all of your friends who love tabletop gaming. Thanks for listening. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. So let's talk about Shadow of the Weird West, which I got to tell you, I am very excited about because I'm a Weird West guy. Um, All right, well, uh, before we go any further, it's Weird weird Wizard. Oh, jeez, I feel like an idiot. No, it's okay. It's okay. How did I get that wrong? That's embarrassing. I just noticed it. Wow. All right, so. I wish (laughs) it was. Weird West is not off my radar. It could (laughs) certainly happen. And I want to. Be, I, 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 now I have to make this. Now you got to so jot it awesome. down. Now I got to make sure that you are like taking Viagra for Weird Wizard with the same level of excitement. All right. Because so we're going to set this I up fail. again. Right, All right. right. Are you ready? Yeah. Shout out to the Weird Wizard. Very interesting, Robert. It's been really great for me to talk to people. Um, after coming back into the industry yeah. and just and, and just learning I've, I've learned so much in these last you know year and a half on the podcast i appreciate you being generous oh sure my pleasure yeah it, it, you feel it's going okay uh, this is phen- phenomenal robert okay. this is exactly what i always hope for is 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 you know like i said when it becomes two guys talking about games I, that's when i think my podcast is at its best so all right good um and that's definitely what we've done i hope that you're having fun Oh, yeah, always. Yeah, this is great. Good. Today's guest is Robert Schwab. Did I pronounce that right, Robert? You sure did. Good job. He is known for his work on... Excellent, my friend. Go, okay. Excellent. Oh, this is great. That's exactly what I like. Just shooting the shit. This is great. Um... So in your mind, Robert, I listed three items uh, for green running. That's for me, not for you. You know what you did there. So I sure. don't feel like you have to touch on those. Um, okay. Let's just talk about your time there. Does that sound okay? Yeah. Great. Um, I it, I was really interesting to hear that, um, Robert, because I had Jay Little on the on the uh, uh, podcast. Um, oh, yeah. 
So it's it's really neat to hear like the two sides of that, and not two sides opposed, but one getting handed it and one handing it off. You know, so that's neat. Very, very cool. I hope I wasn't. Um, contra- I, w- I hope it wasn't confrontational at all. With about oh, that. I don't think so at all. No, okay. I mean it's exactly it, it's exactly what I would have imagined. Like I would have a hard time. I, I like. I'm trying to think. Um, and I've talked to a couple designers who are like, yeah, you know, when I'm done with it, I'm done with it, and what happens afterwards, I don't care. And for me, not having created nothing, but I was just like, I can't, I can't imagine like not being attached to it and watching it sail off like that. So you validated so me, believe it or yeah, not. It was really hard. It was, <laughs> I bet it was. Yeah, it was I awful. don't think I could handle it. Um, and it's. It, I also thought it was interesting what you're talking about because. Um, uh, Purposefully or not, there is that teardown process when you try to reinvent something, and um, you're right. You don't have to do it, um, yeah. even though that might be the, the easiest way to try to validate yourself, right? Right. And, and justify what you're doing. All right. Um, so I'm going to start off with um, when, when uh, you first started uh, courting them. Does that sound good? Sure. All right. Great. you still here look uh the podcast is over and you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers well i mean if you're here might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter don't forget to rate and review this podcast too while you're at it on whatever platform you're listening to i do appreciate you sticking around take care